This episode of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Pit Barrel Cookers. Stay tuned for more information. Hi folks, we're here, episode 62 of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast. Today we're chatting with Tony J. Peterson. Tony is a prolific writer in the outdoor hunting fishing industry with over decades of experience. Tony's also a podcaster with the Hunt for Real podcast, a no BS podcast on hunting and fishing, and a uh, the Sporting Dog podcast as well, Sporting Dog Talk. That's right, and you can find him on uh, like numerous other podcasts and platforms. He writes for Meat Eater once a week, and uh, yeah, he's got all kinds of content out there. Real peek behind the curtain with Tony. But uh, before we get started, I, just really exciting time of year. I feel like we're kind of in the full swing of things here. We got harvest going on. We've got all kinds of hunting opportunities going. We've uh, come and gone to elk camp. Uh, what's going on, fellas? Like Sheldon, what are you doing, buddy? You know, it's the same old, same old, man. I'm always just working and hunting. But to be honest with you, I will say this, is that last weekend, um, my dad and I, well, my dad found this goose. Okay, long story short, my dad found this goose field. He wants to go goose hunting. I didn't get a license yet. So I was like, dude, like I can't go. Um, the neighbor's kid wanted to go. She's 11. And she just wants, like she went out with my dad before and just loves it, right? So he's like, well, just come out and come call for me or like just hang out and show this this uh, neighbor like how to call and show your calls and blah, blah, blah. So I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. So we woke up in the morning, loaded up everything, went and picked her up, went out to this field, set everything up. We had the dog there, um, gave her one of my duck calls, and there was like a, like a slough probably a couple hundred yards away, and she would call in the duck call, and of course, a duck in the in the slough would quack away, and she's like, like just happy. She's like, oh my God. She's like, I'm calling them, you know, and like just having the best time of her life, and uh, yeah, my dad ended up getting a limited Canada's and, and some ducks, and uh, um, yeah, we it was just a super fun time and uh yeah one of those those weekends you'll never forget just because you have like somebody new in your blind and uh or or hunting with and especially a small kid like uh when we're driving home she goes to us she's like so can we do this every sunday morning and my dad <laughs> and i started laughing it's like man i wish we could do it every sunday morning but but yeah it was, it was a super fun weekend but that's what i've been up to that's pretty sweet man just uh getting a young person outside and just feel in the fire for them yeah yeah and it, and you know it's just it's one of those things where i was kind of like thinking about it the other day and when my dad and i get into a blind and you know say the birds flare you know something happens we kind of start bickering back and forth and telling each other that we didn't do something right and and then having her kind of in the middle of us and uh we're sitting in a willow blind too by the way so we're, we're running the willow blinds now and uh, so there's three of us in one blind and the dog, and we're all sitting there on stools, like just hanging out. And she's telling us stories about like whatever, right? And we're we're just having so much fun, and kind of get overlooked of having fun in the blind when it's you and your old hunting partner day after day, and start, you know what I mean? Like just a different perspective in the blind with us, and it was yeah, it was super fun. Seems like it's almost like I I I recall too t- doing a few of those hunts and it's almost like back to your roots a little. You you get away from focusing so much on whether the birds are coming in perfectly or something like that. So, you know those fine details and you're you're kind of back to just enjoying the outdoors in its purest sense. I would say in some ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like that was the other thing too is she was telling me that she was scared of birds. So you know like 
she's like, oh, no, I don't like chickens and I don't like this and like that. And so once we got the birds on the ground and she could like kind of, you know, be cool with them and, and, you know, touch them. And she ended up when we were cleaning them, like when we got home and started cleaning them, she was right in there and she wanted to learn how to, you know, clean a bird and how, you know, what to do. And it was like really kind of rewarding just that, you know, there's still, you know, young kids out there that want to learn and might not have the avenues and, you know, brings it right back to the roots of like panoramic and why we started this. So yeah, it, it was a really good weekend to be honest. Man, that's awesome. That's ex- that's exactly. If you were a guest on our show right now, I'd just be jacked to hear that. But since I know you so well, I know that's the thing you do on the reg. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Chase, like, what's going on with you, man? Well, we got a couple things going on. Uh, trying to figure out how to kill a whitetail with the bow. And I had a couple opportunities to maybe arrow in a doe, but uh, I kind of screwed those up. So, uh, I, the one opportunity I did have, the one good one, um, I went out for a morning sit and, and it was super quiet out. So, and I'm kind of sitting on the edge of this field, just in a bit of a staging area before the deer like head back to their bedding area. And of course I get the fricking the old chicken routine and there's quite a bit of like, I'd say in the spot I'm sitting, probably a solid 80% of the leaves are on the ground right now. And it was super cold this this uh, last few days. Like one morning, I think it was minus five, so real hard frost. Man, I re- I remember sending you a text that morning because I was outside going to work, and I'm like, oh, it's a good morning to be sitting. I had my winter bibs on, man, and like my toes were getting cold. I was like, I'm, I'm becoming a sissy here <laughs> for one. <laughs> but uh, so the the leaves were obviously super super loud, and and uh, stereotypical like chicken adrenaline rush where i got this like rough grouse coming right down the trail that i walked in on and i'm like oh man that's something coming for sure boot and crock a chicken never seen a chicken in this neck of the woods before (laughs) here comes this freaking chicken walks right under my tree stand and then uh like just typical like deer encounter for me the the old chicken like track noise rolls right into like this deer noise and i'm like man that chicken is snapping some twigs over there he must have like put on some weight and uh and then i recognized i was like okay that's a deer and uh so i kind of like peek over my shoulder and here comes this doe and she walks out into the opening i got a doe tag and i am like fully committed to like taking a doe or two this this fall in that uh, it's a bow only area. You can get two two doe tags there, second second deer tag and third deer tag. So, and the, she walks out, and she wasn't a bad looking doe, but I was like kind of humming and hawing, and I could hear a couple more animals coming behind her. So I was like, well, maybe I'll see what the next two look like. And they were smaller, and by the time I seen them, she was already out of the picture. And I was like, oh man, I screwed this one up. I should have just taken that good one at the start. And uh, and then the next time I went out that freaking chicken man was back and he was i've never seen a chicken run so fast in my life <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was getting all jacked up again i was like oh there's no way that's a chicken and he's just like high strider across the woods <laughs> i couldn't believe it and uh ended up seeing a couple of fawns that day and they the fawns were all worked up too man one came and did like a hundred yard dash to my tree stand did a loop around and then ran back out down this trail. And then the other one ran to that field edge. 
and then went out onto the field and when I walked out she was still out on the field there so a little bit of excitement not uh didn't see the big bucks that we have on cam and uh obviously a missed opportunity which is all right better than no opportunity but uh that's kind of been about it man I'm looking forward to this weekend I think we're going to be getting together uh Sheldon and I and hopefully doing some hunting is a is a plan right now and uh yeah I've been doing and for anybody that's sorry, but for anyone that's listening, Chase is the worst plan maker on this side of the Rockies. Oh man. His he... plans go from A to B to Z back to A in like <laughs> 15 minutes. You have no idea. I told my buddy, Chris, I'd help him cut up a moose and at the end of the week. And I was like, Oh God, I totally forgot about that. But, uh, I think we're going to get that done on Thursday. Um, another cool thing I want to talk about quick is, uh, dude reached out to us on Instagram and uh, kind of spoke to us about some saddle hunting. Um, his name is Derek and he actually came down to my house and showed me like the saddle that he hunts out of and his setup and stuff like that. So um, I learned a bunch from him just on his setup and the tree steppers he uses and, and uh, all that jazz. And then he also turned me on to um, some new content. Dan, Oh shoot, man! I'm losing his name right now. Brain fart. Uh, hang on, I'll look it up here. Cool story, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, just learning some uh, different styles for like October hunting for whitetail deer and stuff like that. So I'm hoping to put some of that to use here in the future. But uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. She she wasn't a bad looking doe. That that sounds like a name of a country song. That's right. On on my end here, uh, not too much hunting been happening lately. Uh, kind of the consequence of uh, the times, we'll say, but got hammered out about 30 jars of salsa this week, so we should be stocked for uh, for winter and spring. I don't know if you can get a Boone and Crockett salsa score or something like that, but uh, the stock is healthy, and uh, the last batch was pretty spicy, so I'm looking forward to that. But, uh yeah. Hopefully getting out this weekend something point two. Not sure for what, but gonna take the opportunities where they come up. That's life nowadays. Hey Tristan, when it comes to your salsa making, there's a few things that I'm gonna say about this. Yeah. Top it. Yeah. <clears throat> Number one is this is like one of my favorite times of year because it's hunting. But then every time I see you guys, I usually get a jar of salsa. The flip side of this story is that usually I get a jar of salsa. I can have like a quarter of it because it's. I don't know what's wrong with you guys. You dry like guys. You guys have like, I don't know, something wrong with your tongues where you can eat like freaking lava. But do you, do you, when you're making yourself, do you have a recipe you're following or are you kind of mix and matching and trying different things? Or do you have like, is every year pretty consistent? Because I can't really tell you. So that's why I'm asking. Because your tongue's burnt My off. My tongue's on fire still. That's, that's fair. Um, I have a base recipe that I work off, but chances are something gets tweaked in that every time I kind of I'm always tweaking it a little to to uh to change it up for instance like I I always smoke my peppers and um onions and garlic now but I've also trans this last time I tried roasting the tomatoes that was it made it a little more difficult because you like it reduces the tomatoes so you end up with like a quarter of what you normally get so I landed up like using it was just a mess I would not recommend roasting your tomatoes for that because it just turns out to be way too much work. Um, but yeah, so moral of the story is I try something new every time, typically, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. 
So I guess lastly, my next question would be, did you make a small batch for, you know, people like myself that like the mild salsa or are you just hot, 100% hot? Yeah, I screwed up on the last batch. I underestimated how many peppers or I, I, yeah, I underestimated how many peppers I actually needed uh, and put more tomatoes in than I thought. So that, that one is kind of mild, I would call it on my end. So it sh- it should be like a Safeway medium. If, uh, if that's what you're looking at for. Nice. Interesting. I guess, and I have one more question about salsa for you. Yeah. Is, do you ever like figure out what it is for like cost? Like what would it cost you to, to make a jar? And I know you source all your vegetables, but if you could just like estimate, what would it cost to oh, make man. a jar of salsa? Like would it be a couple bucks? You, think? you know what? I couldn't even tell you. Cause no. I would have to break down the cost of all the plants. We start a lot of the plants from seed. Uh, you know what? I wouldn't even be able to tell you. Well, let's just say, let's say vegetables aside, like you're getting all your vegetables from your garden. Yeah. Like if you were, you know, like what do you put into your salsa production? Like would it be, do you think it would cost you a couple bucks like with other ingredients in the jars and blah, blah, blah? Man, if we're just counting other ingredients that I'm not getting from my garden, maybe 50 cents a jar. Like, okay, maybe a buck a jar if you're counting the caps. Right. So That's cool. Yeah, maybe. So it's uh, it's pretty affordable if you... Don't mind investing in your your garden, obviously. Yeah, for sure. And there's your salsa talk for 2020. <laughs> okay, I found the guy's name that uh, the deer hunting strategies that I've been kind of studying up on. Hey-o. His name's uh, Dan Infault. 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 Something like that. On Instagram. I don't think he's on Instagram. I searched him, but uh, Google him up. He's got lots of stuff, videos. He's on a few podcasts and stuff like that. He's cool. like a super gritty dude. Um, so kind of cool. What's been on the grill, fellas? I'll start here. I was doing a little bit of what uh, I like to call fall cleaning of the freezer and just kind of sorting out what I have left. And when, when I say I do that, because, like, for instance, my sausage supply uh, usually has to last me until at least, like, at the very least, December. Um, and, I mean, a lot of times when we get sausage made, unless we're doing it ourselves, it, it does take a little bit longer, especially when the guy's busy. So... I was checking out how much sausage I had and pepperettes, and I found um, the like a, the kind of like the shank or the the leg of a deer, like the front forearm kind of idea. Front shank. So I took the old clay book from Chase, and I took that thing, threw it in a crock pot with um, some tomato paste and uh, vegetable broth and, and a couple onions and some garlic, and just kind of slow cooked it for about six hours, and then. Um, and there's some water and stuff, soy sauce, et cetera, in there. But anyways, then pulled it out and, yeah, had like a, it was like a pulled deer right off the bone. Um, unbelievable. I, I, I don't think I'll ever trim up a leg again for sausage. I'll be cutting the bone and uh, be doing slow-cooked deer that way for sure. I like the sounds of that, man. I've been uh, cooking borscht like a madman. And so I did up a batch a couple of days ago, and what I did was a uh, – a front shoulder roast from uh deer I shot last fall. So just pretty much just boiled the the roast until it was kind of fall off the bony and then uh pulled that out, pulled all the meat, added all my veggies and uh a little bit of beef broth to give it some some a little bit more body and then uh managed to freeze a bit of that, gave most of that away. It if we had a couple smashers smashes of it when we were working on the ice shock there tristan and then uh today i whipped up another batch with uh 
some wild boar meat. Same kind of idea. Boiled it up and then uh, threw a bunch of veg in there. One thing I have been adding to to the borscht that I've never done before is um, uh, sugar beets. So Jody got these sugar beets off somebody this year. I have no idea what her plan was with them, and I'm not even too sure what we we're supposed to do with them, but I just like chopped them up and threw them in the borscht, and it's been a nice little touch. Adds a little bit of sweetness to it. And just a little bit extra body. The borscht is quite thick. It's like a chunky soup almost. I was just gonna say, like, for anybody that's listening that doesn't know what borscht is, basically it's like a it's like a beet soup, is it not? Yeah, it's a Ukrainian borscht. Chase is talking about. So yeah, it's like a a beet soup. Uh, there's a German borscht that's tip more cabbage based. Uh, but like Chase, the I was skeptical of the the deer leg in the borscht kind of approach. I was like man, there's no way that's going to work. There's not enough fat in there. Like, it's going to taste weird, but I couldn't believe it tasted like we should be making borscht out of deer legs all the time. You get a lot of fat out of those bones, man. I think that's the ticket. Yeah, the bones help because you get the marrow out of there too, right? So that's that's how a broth is made is you, you're getting the marrow out of that 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 big bone too, yeah. right? So that, that helps a lot too. And like you said, all the gelatin and the collagen. Um, but yeah, and it felt good to be working on the ice shack again, eh? Like, uh, uh, we obviously didn't get it all done because that always happens, but, uh, got some serious progress, got the runners back on it, which is always more work on an existing shack than you think it's going to be. Yeah. There's some, some promise there that that thing might see the ice this year, which is, which is kind of sweet. It could be a, a good thing for, to get the boys out there and hopefully nobody goes down a hole. Yeah, I pulled out my last back strap. Did I talk about the last back strap already? I don't think so. Okay, so I pulled out the last back strap that we had for the year that that signals the end of any kind of whole venison that we have in the freezer. Um, also, kind of a similar cleanse to what Sheldon alluded to earlier, and did it up in like what I would consider to be like my classic marinade, which is basically like a little bit of olive oil, garlic, uh, pepper. Um, soy sauce, Worcestershire. Sometimes I throw some hot sauce in there and uh, balsamic, balsamic vinegar. Relax and let it marinate for a while. And then it, you get that girl just ripping and sear that puppy for, uh, you know, 10, 15 minutes and came out perfect, medium rare. Was really happy with it. Um, kind of one of those classic recipes for myself that I keep coming back to. Sometimes I throw some rosemary in there too, but yeah. Nice. Turned out really well. And then moving on to the tap, what I got a, right now I got a tin cup Colorado whiskey going right now. It's American style whiskey, which is basically code for bourbon that was not made in Kentucky and uh, just a real smooth drinking whiskey. Hmm. Might have to try a little bit of that. Yeah. Have a smash. Um, I'll be honest with you. I think I've only had a Labatt's Blue and uh, one whiskey since the last time we've we've gathered around the microphones. Um, hmm. You're off the wagon. Yeah, yeah. Just been busy, man. Lots of coffee, lots of energy drinks. Pretty soon we'll be sponsored by Monster Energy. I'm I'm certain of it. Um, and uh, yeah, that's about it, man. I don't know, Shelly. What do you got going? Um, yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I. Actually, I bought a, a case of Alexander Keys the other day. I haven't had them for a while, so uh, I tipped back a few of those on Friday night, but never got out of control by any means. 
But uh, yeah, I've been enjoying my good old Moosehead beer. And, uh, you know, for some reason, I just like feel like I need to support them because I like moose hunting so much. <laughs> and our logo is a moose that it's just, man, it's my go-to. So yeah, Moosehead beer I'm going to put on the Okay, I lied, this week. I lied to you guys. I did have uh, a couple extra beverages at uh, a bowling alley. Um, one was a moose head, and one I totally messed up on and didn't even realize what I was getting at, but uh, ended up being a uh, pumpkin spice dark beer. And I thought it was just a dark beer, and I just got totally thrown off by the pumpkin spice. And uh, I'm not into the pumpkin spice stuff, just so everyone's listening. Don't make fun of me. <laughs> but the, the the dark beer portion of it was really good. I think it was a Fort Gary, to be honest with you, or something like that. Can't remember what it was, but anyways, just that. yeah. If anybody's enjoying, anybody listening to this podcast and enjoys a nice cold moosehead every once in a while, take a picture of it, put it on Instagram, and tag both of us. Let's get moosehead on on board with us. Who cares? We got the cool, cool logos. Yeah, I like it too. I think that's a great idea. Smash a moose and uh, let us know. Hashtag smash moose. Let's do it. Let's get it out there. And last, but certainly not least, what's on the turntable, fellas? Sheldon, do you listen to music? Yeah, I listen to the odd, the odd tune every once in a while. Lately, with work, I've been driving quite a bit and uh, been checking out some, trying to find some new music. And, and But I actually got went back to another artist that I've mentioned before, that Mitch Glantz from Alberta. He came out with a new single called I Didn't Know. And not only that, but he has got a music video coming out right away quick. Um, and some of our apparels featured in it. So it's pretty, pretty neat, um, that he supports us. So of course I'm going to support him. And I think he's, he, he's a great artist and, you know, support those local artists cause they need, need our support at this time, obviously. But yeah, check out Mitch Glenn's new singles called, I didn't know. Awesome, man. Chaser. That's sweet. Um, I've been putting heavy hours on the, uh, the podcast game. Uh, but I do, uh, toss the old shuffle on the iPhone once in a while and, and another oldie but a goodie came up uh Drake White I don't know if you guys ever listened to him but he's got a couple good ones that are some solid go-tos for me so uh yeah that was a good kind of one to touch on Tristan okay so I've been I've been listening to a lot of camp lately which is like awesome and uh that's kind of a cop out though because Chase, you've you've mentioned camp before, so I don't want to uh to steal your thunder there by any regards. The uh I've listened to a couple singles as well that have just been kinda like in my recently downloaded playlist and just really um tuning into them. One is Jingle and Go by Ryan Bingham, which has been a great tune. And uh the other is Letter to Madeline from Ian No. Um just a couple really, really cool tunes. And I, and I can't believe I'm going to say this on recorded media device, but uh, the the cover of Heart of Glass by Miley Cyrus. Oh, boy. You went there. She, man, she you went there. She belts it, though. And let me tell you, like, she does a great cover of Jolene, but, like, uh, this, this one's pretty uh, legit, too. So maybe I'll... I'm just glad you said it, like, recorded and not me. <laughs> so I'm in the same boat, man. Are you Are you listening to it? Yeah, I've heard it a few times, and I was like, "Man, this is like really good." Yeah, she's like, she's actually like, she's talented, right? So like, I I have a I have respect for that over kind of like 
um, some of the some of the popular stuff maybe that we're we're hearing. She's quite the human being though, man. I listened to the Joe Rogan podcast with her on it. Yeah. Like maybe last month there, and I was like, I was just kind of blown away. Just though, like she's very like seems very smart and stuff, but at the same time, like has some really like epic thoughts on life in general. So let's just say. Um, and she she threw a little shade at Joe there too. I noticed, which is kind of funny. Did he? Yeah. Did he catch that or no? I, no, I never did. I okay. Yeah, so if if you, I, I'm not going to tell you what it is. It's worth the the listen, but I say go back and uh, you can hear Miley take a little jab at Joe there throughout that podcast. Oh yeah, I, I didn't listen to the whole thing. I just listened to like the parts when she was talking about how some about like she has like not brain damage, but she has like issues with some some with her brain. I don't know. I oh, can't yeah. remember now. Yeah. But. Cool. I love when people take pokes at Joe on the podcast, man. Like you guys ever. Uh, Listen to, oh man, I'm losing my brain today. Who's uh, is a meat eater? No, <laughs> no, he's he's a comedian, dude. Uh, Bill Burr, Bill Burr. You guys ever listen to the Bill Burr episode or one of yeah. the episodes? Man, he always gives Joe shit. I love that. Yeah, Bill Bill Burr is very outspoken. He's got a good couple of good podcasts as well. Um, yeah, if you guys ever have time to listen to him, he's got one with that Bert Kreischer, and um, it's pretty good. I like that one. Cool guys. Well. I think now we shouldn't hold you folks up any longer than we need to give us uh you know, all a little hand here and welcoming Tony Peterson to the podcast. Tony is going to br- hit you up with some whitetail wisdom throughout the podcast. Chase, maybe it'll help you harvest uh, an animal this fall here in a, in a quicker, more efficient way. I've been diving deep into a few of his podcasts too, man. He's, he's just a super, even in our conversations with him, you can tell he's just a legit dude, and there's there's no like filler with him really. He's just you get Tony, and he didn't pull any punches, and he might even take a jab or two at a few, we'll say, popular outdoor personnel in the industry. So listen closely. Yeah, it's a great episode, and uh, we hope you guys enjoy it. Coming at you, Tony J. Peterson, writer, podcaster. Give it a listen. Before we get into this episode, I'd invite anybody that's listening to check out our Instagram page, our Facebook page, and anything else. And on there, you'll see that we do a lot of cooking, a lot of smoking with a barbecue called the Pit Barrel Barbecue. These barbecues we've been running now for about three months. They're unbelievable. They have the great, greatest flavor, greatest taste, and they're super easy to use. You can find these barbecues at www.pitbarrelcooker.com. Uh, in the United States, it's like the next day shipping. And in Canada, there's a big list of different uh, places where you can pick one up it comes with like basically the the pipero barbecue a whole bunch of accessories for actually a very inexpensive price so if you're looking to get into cooking great food with a with a great product like i said check out our instagram or facebook go onto their website check out what they got and get one today that you, you won't be disappointed let's go to this podcast episode number 62 All right, so joining us today from Minnesota, we have uh, Tony Peterson. Hey, Tony, how's it going, man? Good, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, it's certainly a, a busy time of year right now for, for the outdoor folks, and uh, I was actually kind of surprised that uh, we were able to, to schedule you in, so um, thanks a lot for that. What, uh, what have you been up to lately? 
Well, yeah, you, you you picked exactly the right day to reach out to me because I I got home yesterday and I'm leaving tomorrow, and <laughs> I just I well I shouldn't say that I'm I'm hoping to leave tomorrow. One of my little girls is developing a little bit of a cough, so I don't know if uh, she's Uh-oh. gonna get to go to school tomorrow. So <laughs> we we just coincidentally just got permission to fall turkey hunt this farm by my house, so she might not be in school, so we might be sitting in a blind tomorrow, and I might not be on the road. I'm I'm not sure yet, but. You know, this this time of year is just a lot of a lot of whitetail travel, man. And then, you know, a couple different states, and then mixing in some of the bird hunting wherever I can. And so I I just got back from Wisconsin where I was hunting some whitetails and grouse and woodcock and ducks and kind of mixing mixing in full days over there. That's awesome. So uh, whitetail and birds is your kind of your bread and butter. It seems like by like uh, the the content that I see you putting out and stuff you kind of specialize in. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, the whitetail thing has always been an obsession of mine and I just I love dogs and so I'm kind of trying to divide my time between sitting in a tree stand and following my lab around and it gets to be a lot but it's it's fun. Oh man, having having that relationship with a good bird dog is like it's like next level and and you almost feel bad when you're leaving that bird dog at home sometimes to go hunting so it's it uh, it's a it's a good almost motivator to get out into the field more than you intend on going out. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it's it is a it's a powerful motivator for just doing more stuff in life for people. You know, it's not just getting out there and hunting more, but people are more active when they have dogs, and it's it just uh, enhances your overall quality of life. Yeah, that's cool. And good family dog too. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah she's awesome. a lab. Yeah, so typical typical lab. Uh, Lab mentality there. Also, the one hunting partner that'll never tell you no. That always, yep. always game to go out. Yeah, down to do the the dirty work. Um, so we, before we get uh, too much further in conversation here, Tony, we always do the five burning questions with our guests here, and uh, just to kind of get to know our guests a little bit better. And um, we always say these are rapid fire but they sometimes end up taking like half an hour to get through so (laughs) um usually we'll start off with uh you know your last day on on this wonderful planet and uh you're sitting down to your last supper what's what's uh what's going to be on your plate for that one oh man uh either some kind of medium rare backstrap maybe from an elk or a or a whitetail or I am just, I'm a sucker for like a really good lasagna. Nice. <laughs> so can I have both? Yeah. Hell yeah, man. You can have whatever right you want. <laughs> yeah. I guess, it, I guess it depends, you know, if it's, uh, if it was my last day and it was like February and I've been eating venison every day for two months or if it's, you know, July and I've been spacing it out a little bit to make sure there's enough left in my freezer. It would just depend on the time of the year, what I chose, I guess. Right on. That's cool. And uh, what would you be washing that down with? These days, water. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I don't drink anymore. I quit drinking almost eight years ago, and so the all the all the fun answers are gone out of my life. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Do you have any hacks there for um, you know maybe someone who's not partaking in alcohol? Like, is there is there another beverage that aside from water that you would maybe lean on? Uh, you know what I'm just absolutely hooked on is kombucha. Oh, nice! And I, I don't. Uh, so that's that's like my guilty pleasure 
beverage now. I just I love it. It's an acquired taste, but I'm I'm kind of hooked on it. And so maybe maybe that it's good for you too. Some of it is still fermented, but not with the the alcohol content. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's probably why I like it. It probably tricks my brain into thinking I'm having a beer <laughs> again, but I'm not. <laughs> cool. We got a couple of jars of that sitting in the in the cupboard right now. Um, <clears throat> one last concert to go to. I'm not sure if you're a big music fan, but uh, if you had one last concert to go see, who would you go see, alive or dead? Well, you you can ask our mutual friend Del Barber about this, but I'm a huge music fan. I play guitar nice. every day of my life, and I love music. And so if it was if it was the last concert I could go to, it'd be Tool. Nice, good answer, good answer. Yeah. Um, man, guitar I I find is like I play a little bit not like i make some sort of noise on the guitar but i feel like it's it's a good uh escape and release sometimes of just uh you know when you can't get out in the woods or whatever just take 15 20 minutes and sit down and play a couple chords and get your mind off everything else because you got to focus on what you're doing kind of thing so it's a almost like a good de-stressor sometimes it is big time um i'm assuming you do a little bit of fishing if you could fish one fish for the rest of your life, what are you chasing after? Smallmouth. Really? I fish all the time, and I love smallmouth. And just just for the action? Yes. I so fun fact: I'm allergic to fish, and so I grew up. You know, I grew up in Minnesota, and everybody is crappies and walleyes, crappies and walleyes. Yeah. And I can't eat them, and so I started just gravitating toward what I thought was fun, and it was either northern pike or it was bass. And at this stage in my life, I'm just obsessed with smallmouth. I just love it. That makes sense. What's your favorite way to fish them? Top water. Oh yeah, that'd be exciting. Just come yeah. and smash. Yeah, I've got we've we've got a place, a little place on a lake in northern Minnesota, and I take my little girls out a lot. It's got a pretty good population of smallies, and so they're throwing you know pop bars and whopper ploppers and stuff, and it's it's big big bronzebacks on top water, and they're eight, and so it's like. <laughs> it's just awesome it's so fun oh man i bet you the kids have a blast with that they do i mean it, it kind of really clued me into something we do with kids like we give kids really crappy fishing equipment a lot of times and then we, and then we just like put them on the dock and we're like catch sunfish but it, which is fine for like three-year-olds but when they start getting a little older they want to catch big fish and they want to be able to cast and do everything on their own so if you give them good equipment and you and you get them in a place where you know the smallies are awesome because they'll chase something down. And so if you're fishing like rock piles or something, there might not be a ton of weeds to get hooked on, and those smallies will get aggressive at the right times. And so you can put those kids on awesome fish. And if you give them the equipment to fight them, they have a real chance. And it's like a it would when I started doing that with them, it was like an eye opener. They were like, "This is what I want." They're like, "Screw those four inch sunfish." Yeah, <laughs> like this is this is better. Oh man, that's awesome. Um... I guess he'd be complete and like in a lot of ways we we always say we're like we're blessed to be in Manitoba here with so many lakes but Minnesota is kind of like the you know the cousin to the south there that would be very much the same way the the land what they call it the land of 10,000 lakes or something like that so lots lots of options I'm assuming in your very own backyard to pursue not just smallmouth but virtually uh you know a, a whole plethora of fish species I'd imagine yeah it's it's pretty crazy you know they our our nickname is the land of 10,000 lakes but i i heard at one point we actually have like 14,000 in this state and then you're not counting all the fishable streams and rivers and it's just it's pretty amazing the opportunities that are out there 
Um, that's awesome. It's funny. Uh, I have a funny story about uh, kids and fishing because you mentioned how they always have like crappy tackle and all that. And uh, a buddy of mine was fishing this summer with his kid, and he's four now, and uh, he's fishing out of a boat, and he drops his rod and reel into the water, and not to be seen again because most of them all have like that shitty plastic handle on them and they just zero float to them sunk to the bottom as soon as it hits the water right so and he gives them the old well you're gonna have to buy a new one with your own money kind of thing just <laughs> to teach them a lesson right so we go down to the local uh the local outdoor store here in, in town and uh super good guys that that run it that uh harvester outdoors and uh so he goes carting in there four year old with his own cash in his pocket and he ends up giving him a smoking deal on this uh on this fishing setup that's nicer than like anything i own oh, no way. <laughs> yeah and now he's got this just rocking setup and he's ready to go again so that's super cool and i that's I, awesome like i mean that's that's something that'll i'm sure motivate that kid just to get out there that much more so super cool definitely okay our last question before we dive into uh um some deeper conversation here and uh i want you to be as open about this question as possible answer as if there were no consequences to this answer because i i did hear a little tidbit on one of your podcasts on how uh maybe you can't get away for as long as you'd like on some hunts during the fall <laughs> so if if there was one animal that you wish to preserve pursue for the rest of your uh your life in uh hunting what uh what would you be going after and uh would it be archery rifle or how would you be going after them well it's definitely archery uh that's that's just my thing um i mean if i had to pick one that i was just locked into it, it would be really hard for me to pick anything other than whitetails just because it's such a year-round thing you yeah. know i mean it's i i love western critters and elk and antelope mule deer i love all that stuff but it's like it's such a sort of a fleeting thing like there's not a year-round scouting to a lot of it and so it's kind of an in the moment type of hunt especially with elk you know i mean you can scout them in the spring and the summer but it's it's different and whitetails you can find something to do with them all year round and so i'd, I'd probably have to go that way even though my heart would be like really no more elk no more <laughs> no more mule deer <laughs> but i think i think i'd have to go with the deer that's a good answer um, I, th I thought that 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 question was going to be a lot more controversial than that. The way you framed it. Well, well, I didn't. Uh, the way I framed it like that is because I heard uh, your wife didn't allow allow you to, or didn't not allow, but uh, maybe didn't like you going out of town for more than ten days, more <laughs> more than a couple well, couple tours of. Uh, it's a just year, a function right? of having little kids, man. Oh it's, yeah. You know, I used to, I, I got really spoiled before we had kids because I used to just leave and then I'm like, I'll see you when I kill. And, you know, this was like pre-cell phones. You were just kind of like out and yeah. <laughs> you'll you'll know when I pull back into the driveway. And now just the logistics of having a young family, it's just tough, man. So it's, it, I'm, I'm up to like one long trip a year, one really cool thing. And then a bunch of, you know, four day type of deals. Yeah. How old are your kids? They're eight. Eight so, twins, twin eight-year-olds. Yeah, no kidding. Wow, that's busy. Yeah, nobody, nobody should hand you two babies at one time. <laughs> like, 
people people always say like oh i'd love to have twins or like you know my kids are four and one so it's like having twins i'm like no yeah you're all idiots you have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> oh man i uh yeah I, I got a couple mine are mine are three and uh one and a half and tristan just had his first year a couple weeks ago so um i couldn't imagine having two the same age would be yeah. bonkers yeah it sucks to be honest with you (laughs) it's having two infants at the same time is so hard and it takes you know everyone's like oh when they're like two they play together i'm like yeah when they're like four then it starts to get awesome but before that it is just there's no escape you know i mean it's it's just two little babies there's you just you can't get away from it and nobody takes two babies you know like yeah. every, all the relatives are like oh we'll watch your kids and then you have two at one time they're like don't hand us two babies yeah. <laughs> you know like they, they're not taking that yeah so i that's that's a kind of an interesting thing to just speak on just like i mean you might be a, a perfect candidate to talk about it uh given your your lifestyle and profession but like how did how did your life kind of change with uh with welcoming two children in, into your life and, and like was uh, their kind of infant stages really the the hardest part of you trying to get outdoors and, and be a family man at the same time or is, is, has it get gotten better or has it uh, kind of stayed the same for you since you've it's, had kids? You know, I mean, obviously it's a huge life changer, right? I mean, it, but it makes you – a couple things it did for me is it made me realize like killing deer is not that important. Like, you know, a lot of these people in the hunting industry that are really like puffing their chest out because they kill big stuff. I'm like, it's rabbits with antlers, man. Like there's more important (laughs) stuff in life. And so it kind of, it gave me that perspective. Like this is kind of crazy that this is my job. Like I get to, this is like what I get to do for my living. And there's a, there's a tournament angler I talk about a lot named Rick Klon. He, he was way back in the Bassmaster days and he won the Bassmaster classic like four times. And he's got a really famous quote. That's like, he was on stage one time and he's like, I, I live in such an amazing country that allows me to chase little green fish around for my living. And I feel like, you, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like that yeah. for whitetail. So having little kids and being responsible for them, all of a sudden I was like, this is crazy that I was like, obsessed and like would get angry about deer and I still do it like but <laughs> it kind of made you realize like it's not that important you know I mean yeah. it, it is super important but it's not as important as taking care of your kids and so it it changed my perspective a little bit and it just shrunk everything down and made it made the planning part so hard for me because it's like okay you have to be here to take the girls to daycare you have to be here for school and I was just kind of used to just lighten out and like yeah on a whim I would go to some state, like buy a tag in Walmart and just hunt and live out of a tent. And I never thought anything of it. You know, I was just like way free yeah. <laughs> and then I was less free, but it was better. And now, you know, the girls get to be a part of a lot of stuff and we hunt together and fish together. And so my worlds are kind of merging back together. And so it's, it's, I, I it's a really cool stage now to see them get to hunt their first turkeys and their first deer and just see them experience this stuff for the first time. And so it's like, I feel like I've gone kind of full circle on the, the whole thing. That's interesting. Like, and, uh, and just to be clear, I'm, I'm no biologist here, Tony, but, um, I'm pretty sure a rabbit with antlers is a jackalope <laughs> just, to, just to be accurate. But, um, more seriously, like I'm, I'm kind of on the front end of that journey now. And, uh, 
it's funny. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that things evolve because right now my, my major barrier is trying to figure out how I fit like my bow case into my back seat with a car seat still, <laughs> still in there. Right. And you're just like these, the really technical barriers that you never, or I don't want to call them barriers, but you know, like you have to work out the logistics in a completely new way. Now yep. that, um, now that you have family and that you, like you said, you, your priorities have shifted in a, you know, like in perhaps the most impactful way that your life will ever experience. So it's, uh, I'm glad to hear that the, the journey does bring you around. Chase is kind of at that stage now too, where he's teaching his boys how to forage and like, uh, you know, how to be connected to the land in that matter. So I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to that very tight right now um as we're kind of grinning and bearing through the uh the very early stages here of <laughs> of uh of family life yeah and that's uh kind of one reason we wanted to one of the things we wanted to have a chat with you about tony too is obviously you've said it here previously you know two young daughters eight years old each and uh you have a few good articles on uh kind of introducing the children to the outdoors and and uh good ways to go about that and and you know often when I think about my upbringing like there's there's a few vivid memories that kind of stick out of my mind is like sitting in the sitting in the duck blind with dad freezing your ass off and the sun's not up yet and you can hear ducks whistling over your blind kind of thing and and uh just being like oh man that's I wish I could shoot. I wish I could shoot kind of thing. And I can't wait to get back out and I can't wait to hold the gun next time or in a couple of years or whatever it is. And then, and then like dad going to moose camp kind of thing. And, and, uh, those are like some of the earliest memories that kind of gave me a foundation to, um, to get out into the woods. But when I think about it, I'm like, man, there, there's gotta be something more there that, that got me to that place that built into that foundation that like, how did I get that interest? How did I end up liking that stuff that I don't even remember about or doesn't even clue into me. And some of the stuff that I read in your articles is now making a hell of a lot of sense of like how to get more of a passion just for the outdoors overall. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I, I, I joke about this a lot. Like I write squirrel hunting articles for a living. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist, but <laughs> I think that when you take a kid and you put him in the outdoors, all you're doing is just tapping into some of the, the challenges we create, we crave and some of the reward centers in our brain. And we have such a weird transition in, in our lives going on right now where we can just, we don't ever have to be bored, but we can, we can fill our lives with total bullshit. Like we can look at Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and news all day long but there's like nothing of consequence so we're not bored but we're not really doing anything that means anything to us we're distracted and so it, it's con what's that that we're distracted is where we are absolutely but but there's nothing of consequence yeah. there and when you take a kid out and you're like okay you this is the first time you're holding a shotgun and you're going to try to shoot a duck out of the air there's something of consequence there it's the same thing. You take them turkey hunting, you take them fishing. Like, do you want to kill this fish or you want to keep it? Or they, they hook one bad in the gills and they bring it up and there's blood running out of its side. Like you did that to that thing. Now, now what do we do? And there's, there's something to that that matters to people. It's like you talking about playing guitar. Like so many people don't want to do that because it's too hard and they don't see the, the value in it if they're not going to get good right away. 
but doing something challenging like that is exactly what we're wired for. So the, the, the reward of that isn't becoming a master guitar player. It's just enjoying something that kicks your ass over and over again, but you get a little better and a little better, just like hunting. And it feels good to progress. I, th I think kids like just, they're so like raw and like ready for that kind of experience. And it's so easy to not give it to them these days. They can do other stuff. And I, I'm, I worry about that. So you're, you're like, I think we got a few things working in our favor here though. It sounds like, it sounds like we're almost kind of like hardwired in some ways to, to enjoy some of these activities. Um, and, and I think about like Chase has alluded to some of our early experiences, but like, I, th I think a lot of the hunting, fishing, and even foraging is like very goal oriented activities. So I know there's places where I've gone hunting that are just absolutely stunning. And I would have never seen that view if I didn't think I was going to shoot an elk over that hill or something like that. You know what I mean? There's, I don't, yep. I don't go on hikes. I'm a terrible hiker. Um, I hope no one listens to this who enjoys hiking, but like I, I'm so bad at hiking, but if you told me that there was an elk somewhere on, you know, within the five mile radius of that shitty, shitty willow brush, like I would probably go through that and try to get through it. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, so like, I think we're playing into our, our nature there a little bit for sure, but it also sounds like there's, there's maybe some better ways and maybe worse ways to, to approach kids with this kind of stuff. I'm thinking like, you might not want to start them off with the 12 gauge right off the hop kind of scenario. <laughs> like, you got any tips for like, uh, how you transition kids, like, uh, good starting blocks we'll say for, um, what do you think? I can tell you what not to do with two eight-year-olds. So <laughs> in the, I, I get, I'm really impulsive. I'm like, a, nobody, people think I'm joking. Nobody should have handed me kids. Cause I'm like not responsible. And I'm like, my wife has three eight-year-olds right now, essentially. <laughs> and in the winter I get cabin fever really bad. That's my busy time. So I'm, I'm at the computer every day and I sneak out for a little shed hunt or something once in a while, but I spend a lot of time working and just not not getting out like I need to. And so I get impulsive and I think like, Oh, I need to buy the girls a shotgun or I need to go like <laughs> buy a stand up paddleboard. Cause I'll use it this, you know, like dumb stuff like that. Right. Well, last winter I went, I took the girls out and I was like, they need their first shotgun. I didn't have like a good use shotgun they could use. And I'm like, they could, they're going to be able to turkey hunt soon. And I didn't realize the pandemic was going to come and we were going to be stuck inside. So they were going to be turkey hunting real soon, but <laughs> I bought them this little, uh, 20 this youth 20 gauge and it's like perfect size for them and looks like this cute little toy gun almost it's like dangerous how non-gun threatening it really looks like it looks like a toy and it kicks like a freaking mule oh, and i didn't i didn't think about it i'm like it fits them so well and it's designed for kids but even with a little target load in there like a two and three quarter inch you know seven and a halfs it is nasty. And so that's what I started them on. And my one daughter handled it really well. And my one daughter didn't square up. And so the first oh, time man. she shot it, it hit her in the lip. Ooh. That was it. It was like, okay, she's done. And I'm like, oh my God, I ruined my kid on the first shot. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was, I'm, you know, like I'm supposed to be a hunting expert, quote unquote, and I can't even do this part right. And so I ended up, I ended up backtracking and starting with the BB gun again and moving up to the pellet gun. And then I, I, have this 410, a single shot 410, and I didn't want them to use that for turkeys, but it's heavier. 
And I'm like, maybe she can shoot this. And so we kind of got into that. And then she shot that. And she's like, this is the gun I like because it doesn't kick. And so you got to be really careful about it. It's just like with bird dog puppies. Like you only get one chance with, with some of this stuff. You know, like gunfire introduction, water introduction, some of that stuff, if you screwed up with a dog, you have a dog that's you might not ever reel back in its entire life. I kind of feel like kids are the same way because you can reason with them and say, like, this does, this one doesn't kick. But if they have that bad experience, it sticks with them. And so my, my advice is to be really careful with that stuff. Man, that is great advice. And I, th- I think about, like, lots of stuff that I do with my three-year-old right now. And it, it goes that exact same way. Like if you go into a situation and you're warning my three, three old, he's, he's like an overcautious, oversensitive kid or hypersensitive kid, I'll say to, uh, to begin with. So if you get him amped up going into something, man, he is like at a level 10 going into it. And if something goes sideways, he's like hightailing it out of there pretty much and he's not coming back <laughs> so well i mean they're operating off of emotion man yeah i mean they're 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 they swing wide man exactly um <clears throat> so uh some of the articles that that you kind of tapped in or that i tapped into yours too is like just getting kids outside and just doing stuff that kids like doing picking bugs, picking rocks, picking plants, all that kind of stuff. Um, Is that the kind of foundation you're talking about, Chase, like that? That's Yeah, that's what I was kind of thinking about, like just that, that stuff that you don't really think about that you kind of grew up doing. And like when I think about now that I think about like our childhood, man, we spent a good portion of our time outside, whether I don't uh, remember a whole bunch of like spending time outside with parents, but like I know growing up we were outside a lot. Yeah, they cut us loose a lot, stuff. right? Yeah. We were pretty much tadpole kind of farmers for a little while in the spring kind of scenario. So like all that kind of stuff you're saying is yeah, kind of like the building blocks to like what it means to be, you know, like a harvester or like or someone who spends spends a life outdoors. Yeah. So is there anything there that you would you would recommend for just getting kids out and anything beyond what we've already kind of spoken about? Yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, it kind of this kind of goes back to what I said about you know, the, the hunting kind of all of a sudden not seeming as important or the killing anyway of big stuff. And I, I always think about this, you know, when we go hunting, we, we have this goal, right? Like I, I want to shoot a bull or I want to shoot a buck or whatever, but there's so much of the process that's made up of stuff that has nothing to do with killing that critter, right? Like it's so cool to be out there and see stuff. And, and be in those places and find neat looking rocks and find shed antlers and just, you know, watching the ducks cruise by at sunset and all these things like we don't, we, we sort of push those away in the hunting industry to talk about the point A to B kill, right? Here's how you kill. Here's how yeah. you do this. Here's how you become successful. But when you sort of look at it like holistically, you go, man, the reason I'm out there, there's a lot of reasons I'm out there. And it's not, you know, like I don't drive 19 hours to Colorado just to kill a bull elk. You know, like I, I love be, being in the mountains makes me happy, even though I know most days I won't even see a bull elk or hear one. You go anyway, you know, and it's like the kid version of that is going to the neighborhood pond and catching frogs or, you know, figuring out when the snakes are going to be out on the paved trail through the park because it's a little warmer than the or whatever, you know. And when you open yourself up to that with kids, you see like 
man, we fill our life with a lot of BS and we don't have to. Like there's a lot of really neat stuff to do and learn about and and think about just in our natural world. And we're, we're it's so easy to become divorced from that. And so I think kids are just like the perfect conduit to get back to that and go, a lot of this stuff's just cool. It's just neat to catch frogs. Like it's not, <laughs> you know, like it doesn't mean anything. You catch them, you let them go, but kids love it. And they're going to ask you a million questions you don't know about. Like I, I never realized how much I didn't know about what kind of frogs and and snakes and birds and why these clouds look this way and all this stuff that my kids ask me about. I'm like, I've looked at that a million times and never thought about what that is. And that you, you like they they bring you into that world a little bit. I think it's awesome. That's cool. Um, I guess the one effect COVID has really had on on that sort of thing too is that. I mean, families are spending more time together and I'm hoping that like lots of these families that enjoy the outdoors are, are trying to get their children outdoors more and, and, uh, just enjoy the time that they have together to spend time outdoors. Um, has, has, have you found more time, uh, to spend with your family throughout the, the whole COVID thing to kind of pass on some lessons to your children or have them tap into that, that unknown, uh, uh, information that, that you don't even know anything about <laughs> and open well, that book I mean, up. You just, yeah, you just find, you know, stuff closer to home. Right. I mean, it was a, it w that was such a weird thing that happened and it just, you know, it happened during Turkey season, right? Right before Turkey season. So, you know, I probably would have been gone, I don't know, four weeks between April and May, maybe actually maybe more. And I was home. And so then instead of, traveling and being gone i'm like well i guess my kids will turkey hunt this spring and we scouted birds here in minnesota close to my house and put in a ton of time and so it was kind of awesome you know it, Dell and i talked about this on my podcast like you know that dude travels all over and does 250 shows a year normally and he was stuck at home and and loved it because he wasn't on the road and i kind of I, I felt guilty missing like missing a whole turkey season traveling means i don't you know that's a lot of articles I lose. That's a lot of photos I don't take. Yeah. And so there's a commercial, a business aspect to it that I'm, I'm nervous about missing. But at the same time, I just stayed home with my kids and we, we hunted here and we went fishing more close to home. And I was like, okay, this is, this isn't so bad. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Does, uh, does like missing your children when you're on the road, does that often change any of the like decisions that, that come up while you're, while you're out there or, or is that just, uh one of the things you deal with as part of your career, we'll say. It's, it's a weird thing. Like you, this, I'm, I'm more at peace with the decisions I make now when it, when the girls were really little, I, I couldn't wait to leave. I'm like, I'm going to sleep better in a tent. I'm not, I, all <laughs> I have to do is think about myself. I'm going to sit in a tree for five days or whatever, and, but you're gone for a couple of days and you do miss them. And you're like, I want to get home. And what it kind of, what it changed for me and it kind of related to that. What I've said a couple of times is I was like the big buck thing. It's sort of overblown. It really doesn't matter. Like nobody cares what you kill too much, you know, like, and I really don't care what strangers think about bucks I kill. So I'm like, I'm going to make my decision based in the moment. And if something's walking by and I want to kill it and eat it and take it home and go home and see my girls, I'm going to do that. And I'm not making any apologies for it. And it actually was kind of freeing. Cause I'm like, now I'm not going thinking like, okay, how big of a buck do I have to kill to justify this trip? And that that's been nice. 
That's pretty cool. It's certainly been a bit of, bit of a evolution in the uh, outdoor industry, as far as I can see. Uh, kind of getting away from that monster box and like the obviously the media part of things is like, you know, there wasn't much in between guys showing up in camp and getting that kill shot on camera, right? And the the kill shot in the monster buck was uh, the feature for how many years they're coming up. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, it certainly is quite rewarding knowing that you, you can go somewhere and harvest something and it doesn't have to be a big buck and it, as long as you're putting meat in the freezer pretty much and you know it's going to be feeding your family and all that all that jazz one thing i kind of been thinking about lots especially over the past year being out in the field is uh you know the first couple of days go by like you said and then the next couple of days you're kind of starting to miss miss the family and and you know uh Lately with COVID, I've been spending quite a bit of time with my boys. And uh, so it's it's a change and you start thinking about them. But at the same time, when that, that urge to kind of like, I kind of wish I was at home right now with the boys, I also get this sense of like, man, I can't wait till I can bring them out here too. So like what uh, you're talking about, you, you're getting out with turkeys with your girls this spring. What What other kind of things like are on your in your crosshairs we'll say to like into in the future getting your girls outside there well they're they just started so in minnesota they can't hunt yet but in wisconsin they can there's no minimum age and in wisconsin they can use crossbows and so i've never that's never been my thing i've always just hunted with vertical bows but knowing that they could handle the shotguns this spring and they shot turkeys i was like they can absolutely handle this if we if we practice all summer and so they've been going through that. We've only hunted one weekend so far. We're going to hopefully get back in two weeks. But that's the thing we're working on now. And it's like a uh, it's a weird thing for me because I, I want them to succeed, but I'm I'm terrified of making it too easy and devaluing the whole thing. Right. So I'm like I'm, I'm at this weird place. I did this with shed hunting. You know, when they were like four, I would stash sheds out there and then they'd <laughs> find them and they thought they were the most amazing shed hunters ever. And I've gradually like weaned them off of that. So now when we go shed hunting, they're like, why aren't we, we used to find sheds all the time. I'm like, yeah, now we're actually looking for them, you know, and they're understanding, like if we find one and sometimes they do, and then, then it's really cool. And I'm, I'm sitting here looking at deer hunting going, I got to take them, you know, I took them this summer and they helped me put up some blinds and we glassed and we put up cameras and I just wanted them to like get out there with the mosquitoes and see like, it's not just show up and kill something, I, yeah. you know, and I'm kind of, I'm at this weird place when we're sitting there. I'm like, I kind of want these deer to come in and then spook. So they see, like, if you screw this up, they're yeah. gone. And there, there's a consequence to this. But at the same time, I'm like, I want them to kill so bad. So I'm at this weird place where I don't want, I want to make it as easy as possible, but I don't, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of, a lot of character building, a lot of, uh, just learning what's all involved and building that grit to you know get that stuff done and and i guess showing them what what is all involved how did how did that turkey hunt go down because i want to know about and like how did i don't know man there must have been a lot of emotions floating around there after after your girls killed turkeys it was so i i took them separate times because i didn't want them both together because that was too much and opening morning here in minnesota this year was like man, it was like 18 degrees or something. It was, it was cold. And so I bring out a sleeping bag and put them in it, you know, and like a bunch of hand warmers and all that BS. But I had a 
I had these birds scouted really, really well. So I'm like, whoever goes opening morning, we're going to have a really good chance. And we actually kind of got lucky. The, the whole flock went one way, but we called off one nice bird and he came in. So 20 minutes in, I had this awesome Tom strutting in the decoys and my daughter dumped him and we were done. And it was like uh, almost anticlimactic. The sun was like just barely <laughs> up, you know I mean? It was like, it was crazy. And so she was like, oh, it feels like I kind of got cheated a little bit. And I was like, well, enjoy that because that's not how, like, it doesn't <laughs> always go that way. And my other daughter was the one who got hit with the shotgun. And so she was like, and and she's just more of a wild card. I, I was, I was like kind of joke. She's like the joker. She just wants to watch the world burn. Like, there's no, there's no rule she ever met. She's like, I think I should probably break that. Like, she's just, she's a little wild child. <laughs> so I'm like, this is going to be tougher. But since her sister killed, she's like, I'm I'm going to make this happen. And so I took her out at noon and I'm like, it's probably going to be pretty good where we're going. But I'm like, I don't know. Might, we might not have action till they come back toward the roost. Well, we go out and we're just covered in birds. I mean, it's, it's gobble city and these Jake's come out right away and she gets busted trying to shoot them. They come back around. I call them in. She gets busted trying to shoot them. And we're just, it's like everything you can kind of do wrong. You do wrong over and over. So she sat for eight hours and didn't shoot one. And we had all these birds roost around us. So it was like a surround sound gobbles at dark when we were leaving. And I was like, honey, we should come back here in the morning. Like <laughs> we know there's birds sleeping right above the blind and all around us. And she's like, I don't want to get up. Well, I got her up. And so we go out there and it's freaking, it's, it's like on, you know, but she's, she's like falling asleep and bored. And so she goes and lays down. And as soon as she does, like, as soon as I hear her breathing where she starts to, she's sleeping, I hear these birds gobble. And so I call and I'm like, they're coming. And I look and <laughs> Tom's just running. So I'm like shaking her awake and she, she like gets up and these birds hit the decoys, just, you know, like fighting mad and she pulls up and they see her and I'm like. I'm like, just pick one. They're seven yards away. Oh, <laughs> you know, man. They're like four foot tall birds. Just shoot one. And she shoots and misses by a mile and they run away. And I'm like, oh. so, so then I'm like, I don't, you know, she's done. She's like, I want to quit, whatever. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's go. But I'm like, I'm not going to let her quit this fast. So the next day I'm like, let's go to where those birds came from and put up a new blind just in case you want to hunt again. And it was kind of like this funnel in between this swampy lowland stuff where all these birds walk through. And so she's like, okay, but I don't really want to hunt. And then one night my wife was out and it's like four o'clock and the girls are just sitting there. I'm like, you guys want to go turkey hunting? And they're, they're like, well, both of us together. And I'm like, yeah, well, I can't leave you home. So <laughs> we go out and, you know, Lila's the shooter and we're sitting in the blind together and a hen comes into the decoys, messes around and they goes off. And then I look out the window and there's three Jake's walking in. And so I'm like, Lila, you got to get ready. And so she gets up and gets ready and they walk in, but they're kind of like not super happy about the situation. You know, they're dumb, young, dumb birds, but they're like, I feel like something's wrong here. Like there's too much whispering coming out of that big camo block or whatever. And I'm like, honey, just whichever one you want there, just pick one. And she like, won't shoot. She's like, I don't want to hit. I don't want to hit one of the, like too many of them or whatever. And I'm like, honey, <laughs> I'm green lighting you. Like this is, this is go time. They're all good. They're like three feet apart. You can pick whatever one you want. And she kept like saying like, which one? And I'm like the one on the right. She's like, I don't know which one that is. I'm like the one on the left. I don't know which one that is. <laughs> I'm like, 
and finally I just stopped and I'm like, okay, they're going to walk away. This is going to be a meltdown city. And I just told her, I was like, just, if you want to pick one and shoot it, go ahead. And these birds have been like, so tolerant, you know, like they're, they're still standing there perfectly still. And it's like eight seconds, which is an eternity. And then she shoots and the middle one drops and everybody in the blind is like dead quiet. Like my girls had no idea what was going on. I'm like, you did it. And they're like, they're like, had no clue. And I'm like, did you not see that Turkey fall? And she's like, well, I did. I just didn't know what happened. And so then it was party time, but I was like, what was going on? And she's like, I was just so terrified to miss. And so she like vapor locked. Yeah, just got through it to shoot it. So it was it was fun. Oh, man, that's awesome. There's got to be a lot going through a kid's head when when uh, they miss a bird and then they they have another opportunity. And and like you said, you know, it's pretty intimidating and uh, be wielding around the gun and hunting with dad and dad's a successful hunter, you know, so um, could be intimidating. That's for sure. It, it's a good lesson for us, I think. It, like, it's a good lesson for anybody who's really comfortable out there and who's done this a long time because new people who are new to it have all those fears. Yeah. So it's easy to think about like an eight-year-old, but you think about you know, you, a lot of women out there want to get into the outdoors and they, like, you ask them, what are they intimidated by? Like handling the gun, where to go, all these things everybody's intimidated by. They're just honest about it. And for us, we're so comfortable, if you've been doing this your whole life, that you forget that stuff. And so it's easy to kind of be cavalier about introducing people or like, why don't you just go or why don't you just go buy a shotgun? But we forgot we had an awesome introduction to that yeah. that took us through all those stages back in a time when we were young. And it's easy to kind of it's, – it's easy to forget that and kids remind you of it. Oh, buddy, you want to talk about uh, an eye-opening moment for me was taking my – my uh, my better half out hunting for the first time, whitetail hunting, <laughs> and like I had never really mentored anybody before that, and just like you're still together though, that's what oh, counts. Yeah, so we're gonna try to get out again this 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 uh, this season, but just uh, my mindset was not in a, in a great place for taking <laughs> taking out someone back then, and and it was just a terrible experience. I can't believe like it's embarrassing for me to go back and think about like, especially with, with the way hunter recruitment is these days that like, man, I could have potentially like ruined somebody's enjoyment of hunting. And like, I'm lucky to, mm-hmm. that she still wants to come out with me <laughs> again. So I'm like, honey, come on. I'll, I'll, it'll be way better this time. I know <laughs> what I'm doing, you know? Yeah. Don't, don't feel bad when, you, when most men take their wives out for the first time, it's like, you you just bump right up on divorce. <laughs> it's, you, everybody gets really close, and it it's we we bring we bring one good thing to the table a lot of times I think, and one bad thing. And the good thing is we want them to succeed so bad. The bad thing is that's sort of fed by our egos, and we let that get the best of us. And it's it doesn't become about the experience; it becomes about the success. Like what yeah. is you know like how how is this successful? We kill something, right? And they, you know, new people to the sport aren't oper- they're not operating the same way. And it, it gets a little dicey. I, I know every time I took my wife turkey hunting for like the first four or five times, we were like not on speaking terms, <laughs> but you know, by the time the sun's up, we're, we're done. We're, we're already dividing our assets and we're, she's firing up Tinder and we're all going our separate ways. Uh, 
Putting eagles aside here, I, this might be a bit of an odd question, Tony, but can you take us turkey hunting? Because I'm ready to feel cheated here. We uh, spent all spring, or I shouldn't say all spring, but we spent a few days chasing turkeys in the woods and had no luck. I should say no luck. We had some encounters, but uh, I would take a turkey on the first day right about now if I was, <laughs> if you had to ask me right now. Oh, man. Were, were you running and gunning with shotguns? Was uh, that the strategy? We uh, We were just trying to gobble get something gobbling and then uh yeah just set up some decoys and bring them in with shotguns yeah yeah the uh the the secret sauce to successful turkey hunting especially the first couple weeks of the season is scouting like they're they're way more patternable than people think and the whole thing is is figure out that circuit and get close to it like you don't have to ambush them and wait for them to show up somewhere. You just got to get in one of those places they tend to like to be. And when you start paying attention to them and scouting them, especially especially when they're coming out of the winter flocks, they're they're so patternable. They they have these things they do in these places they travel every day, where they go to scratch and where they where they go to strut. And the more you can get clued into that, the more you'll be on them, and those setups won't be random anymore. That's a good tip. And it actually makes sense because there's one spot that I remember every time we did a little turkey tour on the road, man, there was one flock in the exact same road allowance every day. And I was like, man, it would be so easy if we just had permission on this land and could go on those turkeys. But that never came to fruition. So, yep, that that was our midday scout. Yeah. Probably an inopportune time to be scouting. Yeah. What what time, What do you remember what like week you guys were out or what time of the spring it was? Uh, well, we hit it, I think, opening week there. So that would be... Was that the first weekend of April? I'm trying to think. Oh, here. man, I got to look at a calendar now. Because we're... we're Wait, fairly, so early we're, April, though? Yeah, yeah, we're fairly fresh into the turkey scene, so it's not uh, ingrained in us. But uh, So I don't, I don't know how far you want to geek out on this, but those early April birds... When you're hunting them flocked up like that, there there's this thing going on if you get to watch them where they're fighting almost constantly, and they'll they'll start to fracture like in the afternoon, and so you can you can get out there and have a morning hunt where you hear five million gobbles, but it doesn't do you any good. And if you stay out there like four, five, six in the afternoon, those two year olds will get kicked out, and some of those birds will start to fracture off and go cruising. So we have we hunt we hunt Nebraska a lot because they open early and they have archery season, and it's it's so consistent where you'll sit there, you know we're on public land so we're watching them fly down on private land into the fields and there'll be fifty birds or seventy five birds, and you have nothing going on until like five o'clock in the afternoon and then one of those two year olds will split off, and if you got a bunch of decoys out and you you can work him he's so killable but hmm. you got to be out there and yeah. it's like. It's it's really I I like the early morning stuff as the season progresses and those flocks break up and they're just they're working bugs and the spring green up. But that early, early stuff when they're flocked up there, it's all about a lot of times the afternoon situation when those birds have been fighting and they get their butts kicked and they're like, I'm done. And then they go out and they see like four hens with a with a submissive jake you know the decoy spread yeah then they go that's there's there's my ladies i'm gonna kick his ass i'm coming in and it's just money but it's hard to stick with yeah it's a long day i'm that's a good tip though i'm gonna definitely put that to play this spring I like that mm -hmm. 
Um, so let's uh, do a little segue into uh, some other hunting advice. And um, w- one thing that uh, some of our our uh, listeners have been kind of getting at us to to get some professional information about is uh, killing early season whitetail. And uh, you seem to have quite a bit of experience hunting whitetail. We we I mean we both hunted whitetail growing up, but mostly like that that rifle, kind of like a run and gun style. Put meat in the freezer, and we never really started hunting archery until probably like ten years ago. And we haven't really gotten real serious about archery till about five years ago. So, Tony, given your skill set, what uh, what are some some tips that you yeah, can? Like how, how do you approach early season whitetail? Like yeah, how, how could we frame that up there? So let's let's talk about maybe uh, like when they're in the velvet. How are we? Well, if you, if you're lucky enough to get to hunt them in velvet, I mean, I, you know, it depends it depends where you're at, right? A lot of openers are by mid September or the first October, and that's that ship has sailed. But those if you if you get to hunt when it opens that early, if you're talking like the first week week of September, they're so patternable. And this is I, I I've only ever hunted velvet deer on public land, so I'm hunting places that lots of it's it's not like I have locked up private, but if you can get on get on a bachelor group and watch them, it's so they're so predictable. And I mean it that's just like that's just a summer pattern thing and it's a scouting thing. And so it's not what a lot of people do in that situation is try to run cameras. And I just try to get on the glass. Like, I don't, I don't think, I I think we have to be very careful with trail cameras. I love them. I just don't think they're a substitute for scouting. And so, and and we kind of use it and some people have to, right. If you're hunting a little property, like 20 acres or something. Yeah. That's like, that's all you got. But if you're, if you're hunting a place where you've got velvet white tails, you probably got a place to glass and getting out there and watching how they go through the environment, how did they cross that river, how did they enter the field, or how they leave it, that's so much more valuable to me than getting a bunch of pictures. And so that's that's always been the key to my early season success is lots of scouting and lots of glassing to figure out exactly, you know, like if I, if I see them walk by just like those turkeys, if those bucks walk by a certain cottonwood tonight, I'm going to be in there tomorrow. And they might not come by. You know, I mean, it's not like a – it's not – a guarantee yeah but if nobody else goes in there and the conditions don't you know, like drastically change you got a pretty good chance and if they don't come by there at least you probably see them and know okay well next time i'm moving to this crossing or i'm going to ride this out because they did this last night and i think they're going to keep going and so it's to me it's like my favorite kind of hunting to be honest with you that early season archery hunting mm-hmm. so when you're talking public land down there um are you still kind of incorporated in the uh, the Agland area? It depends where I'm at. I mean, it, you know, where I'm at, the early season states are like North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska. Uh, and so, yeah, those states all have egg and they, they yeah. play into it. You know, if I'm hunting Western North Dakota, there might not be any egg within five miles of me where I'm hunting. So it's it just depends where you're at. If you're in the Badlands, maybe not, but if you can get on ag, you know, if you have an alfalfa field or a bean field or something, your, your task is a hell of a lot easier, Yeah. you know, and then you might get, you know, I, I just got back from Northern Wisconsin and I'm hunting, you know, pretty much just big woods, whitetails on, you know, browse and mast. And that's a different deal 
obviously it's a lot harder to glass the you know usually the the deer numbers aren't what they are in those ag heavy places so it's a different it's a lot harder but it's you know it's pretty rewarding and in you know the the plus side of that is you usually have a lot of public land to work with so even though you don't have as many deer you don't have as many visible deer different kind of terrain but at least you can you know you can probably enter a chunk of public land that has every deer you'd ever want to shoot in it. Yeah. It just might be spread out over five square miles. Yeah. And, like, one thing I, I kind of find, with like, hunting the our public land here and, like, the the big bush, we'll say, to uh, to the ag land is, like, the the bow, uh, the bow, <laughs> the, the doe to buck ratio in, the, in that uh, big forest seems to be a little bit more favorable for seeing a buck during the day if there's like if you're if we're talking deer to deer to deer ratio um so that's one cool thing um i think their patterns just might be a little different too in the in the bush right for sure yeah so they might be more comfortable moving in the day if they're browsing as opposed to having that almost that ritualistic kind of attraction to a a field in the evening when they know they have to be more covert because they're exposed right i'm not sure if that that's... I think so. I think you're right. Yeah. And uh, like, Tony, I'm wondering if there's any other, like you you mentioned that there's a bit of a difference, but does your approach change? Like do your tactics change when you're now targeting like those larger bush animals? Cause I know Chase and I hunt a lot of the, what we would consider that large bush. And uh, it seems like you can't, you, you already mentioned you can't glass them as easily. So like scouting seems to have changed. We're relying more on like those visual cues, like, Okay, is there, a, is there a scrape line here? Those kind of things, right? As opposed to uh, getting just um, maybe sitting in your truck with a, a good spotting scope. How are you, Justin? Yeah, I mean, the, that's the that's one of the hard parts, right? They're just not visible. And so it becomes a situation where you're just looking for more sign. And I, I just dealt with this in Wisconsin where I was like, I feel like I should be on deer and I'm just not really, I'm not, it's not getting my spidey senses tingling. And I had, I had some people driving in there onto this public on four wheelers at really bad times. And so there was some other factors at play, but the day I left, it was pouring rain. I finished up in the morning and I'm like, I'm just going to go look at this area. I found quite a few years ago while I was winter scouting. And then I, I, I'll swing through their grouse hunting and I killed a buck in there last year. I'm like, I'm going to see if the sign is there. And I went in there, and as soon as I got in there, I'm like, this is where they are. And it, it, it kind of makes more sense when I see the ATV traffic and stuff. I go, this is the corner that no, you can only hike here. Nobody's driving in there. And so that's just a matter of walking in, and there's some rubs in there. The trails are, are hit pretty good. I didn't see any scrapes in there, but they'll be there, I'm, I'm sure, probably within the week. And so that's a matter of just trusting your ability to find that stuff. And so it's just – it's just one of those factors that makes that big wood stuff harder to hunt. And you really, you really kind of got to be a student of the sign and just go, this looks good enough. I'm setting up here. And you know, if the conditions are right and you don't see them, you know, then, then, you know, okay, I got this wrong for some reason. Or if you do see them and you kill one, that's great. If you see them and you don't kill one, you might, you might be just be off 75 yards. You know, if you're bow hunting or a hundred yards, and it gives you that chance to creep in a little closer the next night or the next morning. And it's, it's a really fun, uh, it's a really fun style because it's so challenging. Yeah. So there's, and when we look at the big bush, there's really no substitute for having a, 
uh, moving away from that glass and putting your boots physically on the ground and getting that experience. Um, if you, if you had like a classic setup or if you had like a dream setup that you really like to hunt, I'm thinking like, you know, is it, is it a blind or a tree stand? Is it off a particular tree or, uh, you know, you mentioned a cottonwood brush, like what, how would you like to set up if you had all the conditions that you'd like to see out there and what, what kind of conditions are those? That's a, that's a loaded question, buddy. Um, I like, I grew up in Southeastern Minnesota, so I love hills and bluffs and where I live now is really flat and it drives me nuts. I like, I like up and down terrain. And one of the reasons I like it is because those bucks travel so much with the wind in their favor in relation to the terrain. And so I'm, I'm not, because I hunt public land and, and a lot of pressure stuff, I'm not like a field edge guy. I mean, I'll, I'll sit them early season once in a while, but I, I like to be in the cover. Like I, that's where I bump into most of my bucks moving in daylight is in the security cover. And then when you watch them travel, especially ridge tops, they're always, they've always got the wind working in their favor and they travel most confidently when they're really confident. The wind is, is going to tell them everything that's ahead of them or everything that's kind of parallel to them. And so those ridges, they give you a chance to just drop right off the edge. So your scent's blowing off into nothing. They're not going to get you, but they'll travel them thinking they're, they're so confident with their noses that you can see them almost like they, like everybody talks about big bucks having, you know, like super cautious sixth sense and all this BS. When you watch them where they're comfortable in the cover, they are, they have like a swagger. They look like they own the place. And you know, I mean, they, they're not tolerant to when, when you screw up, they get a whiff of you or whatever. They're gone. Right. They're not, they're not idiots, but they, they look like this is their place. Cause it is. And they know, you know, you think about, they travel down that, that Ridge, you know, 5,000 times in their life. And when the wind's blowing out of the North, they know they've never had danger surprise them. You know, like there's never been the wolves up there that they didn't catch first or whatever. And so they're operating on that wavelength. And if you can just key off of that, like that's, that's what I look for is like, where can I just cheat it? So I'm just off of their zone and they think they've got it made here. Cause if you get into that kind of situation and there's a bunch of rubs and scrapes in there and the timing's right, that's just like, it's just like any second this can happen. Yeah. I love that. That's pretty cool. Uh, and so supplementary here, how, how long did it take you to figure that one out? <laughs> uh, so this is, I, I'm, I'm bumping into this, this weird reality of where do I want to take my, like my podcast and my writing at this point. And what I, what I keep thinking about is like, I just want to be as honest as possible. Like I want to talk about all the mistakes and all of like the reality, not, not what we see on Instagram with another amazing hunt in the mountains and here's your sunset and these selfies and all this BS, but like reality, right? Getting your ass kicked and making mistakes. And so when that, when that hit me, this, this kind of Ridge thing. So I had found this spot on this farm I hunt in Southeastern Minnesota. And this was, this was before I'd ever killed a big, big buck. And this was the spot I had where if I went in there during like Halloween or the first couple of days in November, if I hunted it hard enough, I'd run into one and I'd miss him every time. And I finally got in there and I missed two really big bucks within 10 minutes of each other. And I was like meltdown city. I'm like, I cannot, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't get it right. I could get them there 
And I, I, the last buck I missed in there, he was so close. When I shot over his back, he dropped to run away and he snapped my arrow that was stuck in the ground <laughs> after I had just missed a way bigger buck. And I'm like, I, 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 you know, I wanted to throw my bow. I wanted to have a temper tantrum. And what that taught me, I kept thinking about it. I'm like, why the hell is this the only spot I have where I can, I can kind of predict that if I go hunt this at the right time with the right wind, there will be bucks there that are bigger than any bucks I'll see all season long on that entire farm. And what I realized is they, they're there all the time. The more I started scouting, I'm like, they live on that ridge, but they only travel up there when they've got does on their mind and that wind is coming out of that direction. And they walk through there into that wind like this is – this is they, they did it in such a way that it blew my mind that I was seeing bucks do this. And all it was was they were going, I don't think there's danger here. I think I can do this and get away with this. They weren't cautious. They're just working the wind. And it made me realize this spot's so good because of that. Like there's there's lots of places where there's big bucks and you you maybe can't hunt them. This one, I could access it easily, fairly easily, and I could sit there in the same wind that they trusted with their lives and it worked for me. And so, it, I mean, so what I'm saying there is my answer is it took me like 13 years of hard hunting to, to start that like thought process of well, why is this good? Like it, it took me that long <laughs> to even start to consider the reasoning behind it. So lot, lots of failure is built into that. That, that's just a great reflection and it's it seems like it's almost like you figured out the key there to like make those bucks feel like you're you when you come home from grocery shopping and you open up your door you're not looking around the corners but if you were to go into someone else's house just randomly obviously you would be uh, a little bit more nervous about your whereabouts but you're you're in their environment in a, in a place where they don't know you're there and that's just what it comes down to you need to get you need to sneak into their house basically and uh make sure you're they don't know you're there that, that's exactly how you can look at it i i don't know if you guys pay attention to uh ranella over at meat eater but he who's that he spent steve ranella over at meat eater <laughs> never heard of him <laughs> yeah he said one time uh and i'm paraphrasing here but he said you know he spent all that time down in the jungle spear and fish and doing all that stuff. And he was talking about the natives and how we look down on them. You know, like they don't have the technology we have and the lives we have. And he said, spending time with them, he realized they know as much as we do. It's just compressed into like 20 square miles. So yeah. they know every freaking plant and every time it's going to rain and every little change. And when these butterflies are going to come through and all this stuff. And I always think about that in the perspective of a deer. You think about a five and a half year old buck living basically in a square mile, maybe two square miles his entire life and and having the benefit of a nose that's, you know, absolutely unreal, would smoke a black lab's nose all day long. That that deer knows everything that's going on there. And so like I always think about this when people say, oh, deer don't spook on trail cameras or you can pop up a blind or whatever. I'm like, are you nuts? Yeah. <laughs> like, They're tuned of in, course man. they know that. Yeah, they know it's there. Yeah. I got to say like 90% of the deer I have on trail cameras this year are all looking at the camera. Even even some of the elk that I got on camera this year too. And uh, so I got, I got three things for you, Tony, for the next little portion here. Um, first is like, you're talking about that, like f that 13 years to learn to how, how to look at the land and why deer thing do 
things that they do. And like, man, when I look at back at like some of the stuff I did while I was hunting, it just like, I was so focused on like trying to just kill a deer that oftentimes I didn't like pay attention to, to where I was at and why the deer were here, that kind of thing. So, um, I think taking that focus away and paying attention to the environment you're in and where you're at and everything that's going on around you is a, is a great indicator of, you know, not only how you can kill a deer there, but how you can bring that over to another location and, and find a similar spot. Big time. On lessons, if you want some good content, man, you ought to come to Archery Elk Camp with us <laughs> because you will have content oozing out of your out of your ears, man. Um, and uh, lastly, um, when you're when you're scouting for for deer, um, are you worried at all about bumping deer out of your area? Like, so one of one of the areas that that I'm we're, we kind of focus on this year, and then coming into the farmland for us is is a bit of a, a change uh, for Tristan and I here. Like like he said, we we often did most of our hunting in the big bush. Things are, are a little bit different there, but um, we're doing a lot of archery hunting on the farmland this year. And, uh, you know, there's some, like, there'll be, like, a quarter section of forest that this farmland kind of has around it. Um, how worried are you about bumping deer on that piece of property while you're scouting through it? Like, do you do do you do you a mid-season scout to see if there, there's any rubs or scrapes or anything on that in that uh, forest or would you just uh do like a super early like summer run through it and try and find some old sign and and where they're at during the summer and just those telltale kind of habitats that you know you're gonna find deer running through you know one thing you learn when you hunt public land a lot is deer get bumped all the time you know i mean do you guys ever watch the hunting publics videos you ever see those guys a few of them yeah yeah, so I was just in North Dakota hunting, and they were there across the river from me, and they blew every freaking deer out of that river bottom that was in there. <laughs> they don't know I know this yet, but literally while they're panning the river, I'm sitting across the river glassing like the same whitetails, and I watched those guys scare so many deer. And I promise you if you go back in there now, you can shoot a big buck in that same spot. They're not going anywhere. So what we do when we bump them is sometimes we just put them off. They're, they're more nocturnal or instead of going into that corner of the field, they might hold off and wait till dark and come out or they might go in a different corner. But like we just talked about, that's their home. They're not going away. So then the, a lot of times the negative that we do is we just, they go, okay, I'm a little more cautious. I'm going to scent check this longer. I'm not going to come out in daylight. And so I always try to be careful. Like I, I don't try to be cavalier about just going wandering around. Like I don't want to spook deer, but I scout all season long. I'm going into places I want to hunt. And a, a lot of times, you know, last week was a little bit of an exception for me because it was pouring rain and I knew I wasn't going to go back there for a couple of weeks. So I just hiked in there and I'm like, I'm just going to sniff around a little bit and I'm going to leave. I knew my footprint wouldn't be that big, even if I jumped some deer. Mm -hmm. But if, a, you know, throughout the season, if you're, if you're doing a lot of hang and hunt stuff and you're going into different spots, that's just, just what you're doing. You're just looking for sign and you're going to set up there, or you might take a little stroll at midday and look around and it's like a calculated risk reward thing. You know, like you don't want to just go blow through, you want to go kind of with a purpose and go, okay, I, I want to look at this area or they were coming out in this field and they're not anymore. Why? 
you know, they're probably feeding in there in the dark, right? So maybe they're just staging 100, 200 yards back. And you can you can creep in a little bit. You start seeing those clusters of rubs or you see some sign. You go, okay. Or you bump into that hard mast or soft mast that's dropping. And then all of a sudden you go, this is, this is why I'm not doing any good over there anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, you know, you, you don't want to spook deer, but you'd rather, like, I think one of the biggest problems we have as hunters is we push dead programs a lot. And we just pick the places we want to hunt. So right. like, I want to go to that tree stand on the field edge cause it's easy to get to. And I'll probably see a few deer come out and I don't really want to go hike into the woods and, and hang a stand or get up in a saddle. But that's pro- that like a lot of times that's what you need to do to be successful. And so yeah. we, we, we tend to want, this is like the trend in, in deer hunting right now, especially down here, create a spot all the deer want to go to and make it easy. Right. Plant that food plot, put that pond in, put that box blind over it, create that spot that's irresistible because then it's easy. You walk in there and you hunt that spot and now you have your place to hunt. When you don't have that, you have to go where the deer want to be. And so it's it's a matter of finding that out. And what what that was a week ago is not maybe what it's going to be today or next week. And so that stuff changes and they're leaving, you know, it's like elk hunting. When you, when you go out there, if you're not around fresh elk sign, guess what? Your week sucks until you get around them. Like there's, there's no way around it. They're leaving sign out there and you've got to find that. Whitetails do that on just a smaller scale. And it's, it's important to keep looking for that and keep learning from that. Yeah. One of the fellows we had on earlier, uh, Shane Boutonnier, he was uh, a bit of a vegetation biologist. uh, And it, it struck home just how, if you're looking at deer and away from that egg land, they, they're much more cyclical in a lot of ways, right? They're, they're relying on that, that natural cycle of the way the forest is operating at that point in time for their browse or whatever it might be. Right. So I can totally understand, or even the egg land deer, you know, when those fields get cut, they're changing their patterns. So what you're saying there is that we have to be in tune with those things. We just can't just hang out in a stand because we know it's in a good spot um, at one point in time. For sure. For sure. I, I think I, I feel a little bit of guilt at knowing like there are people out there that know plants like that because I don't know what I should. <laughs> now, and I watch deer go through and they're nibbling on this and they're nibbling on that. I'm like, I should know what that is. And I, you know, just like, I just don't, it's just a hole in my game, but it would be an eye opener to be that versed in plant life. It would help you as a hunter a lot. I think. Yeah, he he uh, he referenced a few good like uh, old timey archery hunting books, and uh, he I I asked him for like a couple good reference books to to dive into, and he sent me three of them, and uh, I can can't find two of them I don't think, and the one he did send me was like three hundred and fifty dollars on Amazon, <laughs> and I was like holy man, <laughs> and he yeah. he's kind of gave me the old. Oh, I'll send it to you. And if you want to borrow, I was like, are you kidding me, man? My kids would have that thing ripped up in two minutes if they knew it was $350 book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he said, uh, reading that literature often, he said he, he finds a lot of good learning points and a lot of good, uh, um, uh, like plant references in there for mm-hmm. whitetail and stuff like that. So probably some of that more academic stuff, but, uh, like also the same vein of thought probably to what Renella was referencing earlier, um, in the sense that when we look at those, some of those indigenous cultures, they likely knew the, the, the biosphere so well in those areas that it was almost second nature to them. And they would probably look at us the same way that, Chase, you might have looked at your partner there when it's completely obvious 
to not slam the truck door when you're exiting the vehicle <laughs> during deer season that, um, you know, it might also be completely obvious to them that, you know, whatever wildlife that they're pursuing would just be eating that plant at that given point in time in the season. Right. So like, yeah, yeah go ahead there, Tony. Oh, I just, I just think that that's like such a, such a weird carrot hanging out there that like we could, we could know that and be better hunters and we just don't know it. <laughs> we just don't do the work to figure it out. And you know, it would open up that world for you. You would, you would have just, just so much more to work off of. And it's like, I'm not learning plans. <laughs> I'm just going to put out a trail camera. <laughs> um, you spoke a little bit about, uh, your, your hunting stands or hanging out of a saddle. What's, what's your kind of go-to, or what are you most comfortable in when you're when you're doing some running gunning on on uh, public land there with the um, boat? You know, I'm I'm trying to do. This is the first time in my life I'm doing this, but I'm trying to do almost all day sits all the time now. So tr- just trying to be out there more uh, instead of you know during the rut you sit all day you know. And so I'm using lightweight Millennium stands typically and lone wolf climbing sticks. You know, I, I like that setup a lot. You know, I'm I'm leaning more in the saddle direction for some of the some of the just hang and hunt couple hour sits. And so it just depends. But with when I have to be out there or when I when I'm like I'm sitting most of the day, if not all the day, you know, I'm bringing a big pack with a bunch of snacks and yeah. whatever. I, I, the stuff to keep my sanity, coffee and all that stuff. And so I just go a little bit more luxury there. And I'm like, <laughs> I want to sit in a freaking stand and not hang in the saddle. Yeah. Hey, we're big snack guys here too. So what are you snacking on in the stand? Oh my God. So I'm a, remember when I said I'm an eight year old at heart? <laughs> I, people think I'm, I can present this reality that I'm like a pretty responsible guy. I mean, I, I work out a lot and I have like a good professional career kind of, but I, I'm such a, you know, I quit drinking so I could be a better person, all this stuff. And I am just so goddamn hooked on sugar that I can't, I, I love candy so much. So my backpack, if you were to look, it would be embarrassing. I'd rather have you look at my like browser history on my computer <laughs> than in my backpack right now. And you'd be like, yeah. Who, what kind of 40 year old has this many nerds? Like I have <laughs> so much just Halloween style candy and whatever in there. I don't, I don't have like a go-to snack. If it's got sugar in it, I'm going to throw it in there. And if it's coffee or something with, with a lot of caffeine, I'm going to drink that. Like I'm a, I'm just, I'm like a really, you could look at me like a really crappy drug addict. All, all I have left now is just sugar and caffeine, but I'm like way hooked on it. <laughs> so has a buck ever busted you with like an old Henry bar halfway through your mouth there? I've had, yes, everything you can imagine. I've had, it, like I, I, we, we joke a lot, my buddies and I do, every time we start eating a sandwich, something good happens, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's a cliche thing because it happens like three times in your life, but you always remember, you're like, oh, I just took a bite of my sandwich and the buck walked into the turkey or whatever. But yeah, I've had to stuff candy bars and coffee thermoses and all kinds of stuff back in my pack. I, I actually set up for that prospect now because I've been through it before. So my pack is set up in such a way, like I know exactly where that coffee thermos is going or exactly where i'm going to chuck the candy bar or whatever if something comes in you ever been at full draw with a candy bar in your mouth uh no i don't think so (laughs) (laughs) maybe next time we talk yeah Yeah. cool um do you have anything else you want to cover on the whitetail subject 
Not necessarily. I, I we might loop back to who knows the way this podcast works, but I well, I am curious though. Like you, we we've kind of made loose reference here to your media career, Tony, but you've kind of cut your teeth in print media and are now moody, moving on to podcasts as well. Um, how did you get your start in media? Like, what did that look like back in two thousand three? Was it? Um, that's the first time I got paid. So I I had been writing for whoever for free randomly and then I, I wrote a trout fishing article in 2003 that I got paid for and I just got really really lucky I mean the, the one thing the one thing that you find in the outdoor industry that I really love I mean I, I talk a lot of smack about the hunting media but people will give you a chance a lot of times and so what I found I was a no-namer who just graduated college and I reached out to editors and every one of them gave me a chance and, you know, they, they, they set the parameters like, you know, this is this is the word count. This is whatever, however, the format, this is what you, we want you to touch on. And if you don't hit it, you know, we're not buying it or you're not getting published. And so it's not like they're like, hey, we'll take anything you have. It, it, they kind of are that way now. Some of the digital publishers are, but they don't pay anything. But back then it was like I, I was blown away that these editors I had looked up to my entire life would give me a chance. And. It was just a really good experience because, you know, I went through the same thing everybody goes through where I had some success. I had some failure. I had some people tell me I was worthless. I had some people tell me I had, you know, possibility of making it. And it just was it was just one of those things like you just kind of work through and it just became something that I really wanted. And so I just worked a little harder at it. I'm like, I don't want to go. I had worked in a cubicle. I had worked in manufacturing. I'm like, if this if there's even a <laughs> glimmer that somebody's going to pay me to write articles about squirrel hunting. I'm going to freaking, I'm, I'm sprinting in that direction. I'm going to cross <laughs> my fingers, you know? So, so you referenced some of the, your, your iconic uh, editors there that you looked up to. Where would you place yourself on the scale in your writing style to like, uh, between like a David Petzl and like, we'll say a Bill Heavey. <sighs> that depends what I'm writing. <laughs> I, I like both of those guys a lot. They're very talented. I, what I like right now in the hunting industry. So for a long time, it was how to, or the story of my buck. And so there was kind of a, a style you had to adopt, right? So it was like, if you were in bow hunter magazine, you kind of had to write me and Joe went hunting and golly gee, and this was kind of how it went. And then along comes, you know, people like meat eater and, or, you know, organizations like meat eater and field and stream kind of pushed this a little bit where they were like, you know what we want, we want people to write. Well, we want people to write their own style. Tell us a hunting story in your own style. And now it used to be kind of exclusive, right? You had to write for field and stream or outdoor life or somebody who would give you that chance this that way. And now you have that opportunity more. I mean, I find myself writing stuff, having so much more freedom to write the way I want to and enjoying it more. And it's happening in weird places. Like I was, I, I've been writing a lot of stuff for game and fish magazines lately and I'm enjoying the crap out of it. And I swore at certain times in my career, I would never write for those guys again. Part of it was because some of the editors I worked with and now that's changed over, but they're just loosened up and they go, have some fun with this and tell the truth. And, you know, let's hit these points, but let's, let's make this enjoyable. And as, as a writer, 
not having to follow a format or a style as closely is like heaven because a lot of it was very you were, you were tied very tightly to whatever medium it was so i'm it, it, like that's a to me that's a super positive in the hunting industry right now man i could only imagine just the the quality of the product that you're able to put out is just substantially increased just having that that loose kind of outline and just do what you want and but make it good kind of thing yeah it's got to be a good way I mean, it, it's it's amazing and part of part of what we've done you know you you bring up petzl and heavey they worked for they Field. work for the one place that the whole time has been like let's come up with awesome ideas together editorial team writers everybody and let's make it the best we can so they come with that working relationship of like, here's what I bring to the table. Here's what you bring to the table. Let's do this. And there was a, there was like a level of professionalism and like kind of competitiveness to, to it. You know, it's kind of a bullpen thing. Like let's, who, who can do this the best. And that brought those guys who are the best in our industry to the table and it made them better. And a lot of other pubs didn't really see the value in that. Like they didn't, they looked at, you know, the, the important thing is being a good hunter, kill a lot of stuff, or can you, can you test bows and write about that? That's good enough. And there wasn't as much of an emphasis on being a really good writer and developing that style. And now you've seen that switch a little bit. I think it's because it just got so commoditized. You could find hunting information everywhere. And people are like, you know, I want to read something that I actually enjoy. I don't want to just read something that's about hunting because I like to hunt. And so it's, it's been a weird change but it's i i welcome it i think it's cool yeah so and then we've spoken to it seems like meat eater really spurred on a revolution in some ways of the way we talk about hunting and the way we interact with the outdoors um but it, it seems like some of the strengths you've you relate to in field and stream are really the underlying strengths of that meat eater franchise which is like being a narrative based or very very engrossed in the storytelling and uh, tradition aspect of being outside. Uh, is that kind of how you see the, the, the latest transformation here or is there something that I'm missing there? Well, it, it's no, you're, you're spot on. I mean, when, when Steve came along, the, the mentality at like the sportsman's channel and the outdoor channel was there has to be a kill. Otherwise you don't have a show. You couldn't bring a no kill show to the table. And they said it wouldn't work. People would hate it. And Steve comes along and does this show that's just about how he likes to hunt and fish and eat stuff. But he does it in a way where he's telling a story better than anyone's done. And so people go, wait a minute. I'll, I will tolerate, you know, I'm I'm a bow hunter at heart. Like if you put on a rifle hunting show, I might watch it because it's there, but I'm not going to seek it out. And I'll watch every episode of Meat Eater, even though it's like Neil guy hunting in Texas with a rifle. Like it's, it's something that on paper you'll never catch me drawn to. But he does such a good job with it that he's bringing in the storytelling and the experience. And that that I think was the reason that the industry changed. You know, we talked about that with going from how to stuff to experiential stuff and people appreciating the outdoors. Steve was a huge driver for that. He just showed like, I love this lifestyle, all of it, catching flounder and, and diving for sea cucumbers and shooting caribou, whatever. He's like, I just want to be there and I want the whole process. I want to eat it. And people go, I can relate to that experience. It's not just some dude showing up in, you know, 
at some outfitter's place saying, we're going to hunt really hard for the next four days on the Milk River. And then they shoot a 135-incher that somebody else did all the work for and they pose with it. People look at that and they go, "This is there's nothing to that. I know exactly what this is. And yeah, I'll watch it. Like I always, I always kind of equate it like, if I'm walking by the TV and there's a naked woman on the TV, I'm going to stop and look like <laughs> I'm just wired to check that out. If, if I'm flipping through the channels and somebody's hunting a deer, I'm probably going to stop and watch it. Even if I hate myself for doing it. And we, they, the industry lived off of that. Like you, you don't have any other option. We know you like this and we're going to give this to you in this form where we want to do it. And Steve went, uh, we're going to do this different. And then Randy Newberg comes along and does it. And now you see all these people who are like, the experience is amazing. We're not following the typical script. And it's just been, it, that, that's been really cool. And it's been, it's been responsible for bringing a lot of non-hunters into the hunting fold, which people don't really think about. They don't hear about. It's crazy what that's done. It's so good for us. It, and, and it's interesting too to think, and I, I want to bounce this off you too. I don't want to dwell on Mr. Ranella too long because I'm sure lots of folks are familiar with him. But when I watch him do his work, he comes off as a very unassuming fella. And um, he's really affable and like relatable in that sense. But I'm, I am 100% positive that his success is by no means accident. He is a, uh, you know, he's a well-educated individual, like education gets you so far kind of scenario, but like you can tell that he's well-versed in what he's talking about, whether it's on his podcast or on a show, he's got this um, way about storytelling and he's also um, a conversationalist at heart too. So I think with Steve there, you, whoever discovered him kind of happened upon this perfect storm of uh, just relatability for the, presenting the outdoors in a new light. And uh, it's been interesting to see other people. You mentioned Randy Newberg, and like, uh, there's even a new generation that like some of the, the social media kind of leaders like Hush and stuff like that um, springboard off of that. But what Steve's done, I think, by no means was an accident in, in any way. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it was an accident. I think, I think he was... Uh... He's one of those people who has an incredible work ethic mixed with a lot of intellect and talent. And when you put those, all those things together, you know, I, I used to do a lot of work with Tom Miranda and, you know, he's been around a long time. And one thing I got from him was if that guy had got into golf or scuba diving or selling shoes or whatever, he'd have been a millionaire no matter what he'd have done. It wouldn't, it just happened to be trapping and then hunting. And Steve, he, he's the same kind of person. There's like a weird curiosity mixed with drive that just it just pushes him into a place where like the success is going to come and he's going to earn it. But it's just it's like it kind of pisses me off when I see somebody like that. I'm like, <laughs> not you know, I'm like he's a better writer than me. He's better at podcasts. He's better on TV. I'm like you should only get one thing. Like you should only be good at that like one thing. He just got it all. And it, what I love about it, 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 maybe the thing I love the most is he's not an expert hunter. Like when you, when I watch him bow hunt on his shows, I'm like, Jesus Christ, dude. Like, have you ever put up a stand before? You know, and <laughs> he'll tell you like that, he, he, you know, he's not an expert at that. Yeah. And, and we used to think in the industry, you had to present this expert BS all the time. Like you gotta be the guy who can kill 200 inch bucks everywhere you go and blah, blah, blah. And you start to find out, yeah, the way you do that is with a giant checkbook 
and a whole bunch of opportunities that nobody else will get. Otherwise, you can't possibly do it. And so seeing somebody who's just like really flawed and screws up all the time and just still enjoys it, that was like a big thing for the industry, I think. That's pretty cool. It, it's funny because uh, you mentioned his bow hunting too, because one one thing that kind of resonates with me um, when I think about uh, mostly our struggles when we're archery elk hunting and like there are, if we would have had a rifle out there, I mean, it's clearly not rifle season when we're out there, but we could have had a <laughs> trophy room full of, full of trophy elk, right? And uh, every time we have like a missed opportunity um, or a close encounter with a big bull, the, the two voices in my head that really come ringing in is one, my dad, who's like an old school hunter is like, I could hear him blatantly, oh, if you boys would go with the rifle you'd have one in the freezer by now kind of thing and then uh steve ranella saying you know i'll take whatever is the easiest for me to harvest an animal ethically where the if if it's a toss-up between the bull and the rifle i'm taking the rifle every time kind of thing so it's mm-hmm. it, it's a tough kind of conversation or decision to have in my mind but i feel like we're so invested in this archery elk tour now that that if, if i if i were to pull out and go with a rifle and hunt the rifle season that the the satisfaction of it just wouldn't be there yeah well i i think i'm i can't say this for certain but i think one of the reasons steve says that is because when you film a lot of tv shows you bring a rifle a lot more yeah and so i think it's like an easy way to justify oh well i'm i'm always going to take the easiest way because i want the meat and i'm like man there's a lot of ways you could do archery hunts and especially the way they're doing it where they're going to hunting with people in different places and stuff. I'm like, you could kill stuff with bow. You're just justifying taking that rifle out. I see what you're doing here. (laughs) And I I mean, I, I get it. I've I've filmed stuff before and I understand like if you've got to produce shows and you don't care if it's rifle or bow, I know what you're bringing. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, if you got, and they have, you know, sometimes they have a couple people and a producer tagging along behind them. You know why they're bringing a rifle. Yeah. That's a big crowd to, to, to cover up in the bow stand, yeah. right? Big time. And so, you know, we've kind of talked about some of the cultural kind of impacts with hunting shows and such. What's What's been your journey here? We talked about your start, Tony. You're, you're now getting into podcasting or, or you're into podcasting. What's, what brought you here? What, uh, how did that kind of print, that print writing go and evolve through time? And uh, where are you at now? Well, my main motivation was I don't want to starve. Uh, and when, you, <laughs> when you're when you in a dying industry like print, you got to go somewhere else. And, you know, the writing the writing was on the wall as far as what's, what's going to happen to magazines. You know, I mean, there's no magazine out there that could compete with your phone. You just can't do it. And so it's, it's going digital no matter what. And that's, that's just the way it was. And the, the thing about digital is there's no exclusivity to it. And so you can get work all day long in digital, but you don't get paid the same. And so it was, you could, I could see the trend and go, okay, well, I'm going to do a lot more work probably for less money. And it's it's a zero sum game over time. And so then I'm like, okay, what am I, what am I into? And I love podcasts. Like I listen to podcasts when I'm running, when I'm driving in my life, I listen to podcasts a lot. And so I'm like, that's kind of a natural thing. And I'm, I'm kind of at a point in my life, in my career, where I'm, I'm more comfortable being unfiltered. Like, I, I feel like at this point, I can just tell the truth and, like, whatever. What are they going to do, fire me? Like, I'll, I'll go work <laughs> for somebody else. Whatever, you know. And they, they try once in a while. But 
it's it just a medium I enjoy. I love it. I love you know how, how else would we have a hour and a half, two hour conversation about hunting and life, and you, you can't do that any other way. And I, it's so valuable. Like I feel like I get so much out of it listening to podcasts that I just love this platform. And it's just every day it's becoming more viable as more people get turned on to it. So it's a, it's a great medium to be in. And it's just a reflection of the new world and our, our lives. And, you know, we, we can either sit down and consume content on our TV or a computer, or we can be mowing the lawn and listening to people talk about hunting. And I think that's, I think it's an amazing opportunity for us. Yeah, that's cool. One of the things I, I really enjoy about podcasts too, and I think you kind of hit it on the head there, just that when I'm mowing the lawn or when I'm driving or whatever, and people are so busy these days that they don't often have time to even spend time on their phone to learn something. And that's podcast gives a great opportunity for people to tune in and, and uh, learn about pretty much whatever they want while they're on the, on the go. Right. Yeah. You've had a real, real like involved career, obviously in the, in the outdoor industry and in having that look from the inside. Um, was there like any just, like distinguishing moments or just just like moments that really stick out in your mind that I don't know or is like an aha moment or when you see the like tides changing in the industry and and you're like maybe I ought to hop on that ship kind of thing (laughs) (laughs) um yeah I mean a a couple of them they've all kind of I don't know how to phrase this they've all been situations where I just felt like I got a little glimpse into what the audience actually wanted, or I got a glimpse into why the industry wasn't listening to the audience. And so the first time was my first job in the industry was at Peterson's bow hunting magazine. I was associate editor for a couple of years. Economy crashed in 2008. I got let go from there. But what happened that time is I'm editing articles by like Bill Winkie. He's a huge writer for Peterson's bow hunting and a couple other guys like, like Bill in there what I kept, you know, so I'm, I'm reading these features about Southern Iowa, really well-managed land, you know, the whitetail Mecca, somebody who knows how to grow big bucks. And then the people who are writing letters at that time are sending emails. They're like, Hey, I want to, I want to read about stuff that actually pertains to me. And it was over and over and over again. And I'm, I'm thinking the same thing. I'm like, I'll never hunt a property like this. Even, even when I was in the industry, I was, I was getting invites to some of those hunts, but I'm like, I don't want to go on a guided whitetail hunt. I hunt whitetails all the time. You know, like it was, and so I'm looking at this, I'm going, I could see why the content came from where it came from. When you're, when you're in the industry, you can, you can go on a lot of easy hunts and kill big stuff without working for it. You just can. Some people go that way. Some people don't. And the people creating a lot of the content, especially back then were doing that. So it was like this self-feeding machine where it's like, take the easy stuff, kill a lot of stuff, get the work over and over, lather, rinse, repeat. But I'm hearing from the audience and the audience goes, this sucks. I don't want this. Hmm. And so when I got laid off, the first thing I did is I said, I'm going to I'm going to focus really hard on public land whitetails because whitetails are king and the industry is not giving people public land information. And so I was young and I'm glad it happened when it did because I didn't have kids and I was too stupid to realize how much work it would be to be like, okay, I'll just go kill a bunch of big bucks on public land. Like it was, (laughs) it was an easier decision to make than to actually implement. And that was one of those moments. But when I started doing it, I was like, this is tapping into something. Like I could tell right away when I would write stuff and people would reach out. I'm like, I've never had this response before. Mm -hmm. People, this was, this was touching a nerve, you know, It it was resonating. And then just to solidify that probably about. 
I don't know, six years ago, I was at a dinner at the ATA show, the archery trade show one mm -hmm. time, a whole bunch of people, editors, uh, media companies, hunting elite type people, people with lots of opportunities. And the topic came like the future of hunting. And we started talking about how, you know, like how hard it is to get access and find places to hunt. And one of the people there said, you know, you can't go knock on a door anymore and get permission. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, nobody in this at this table has knocked on a door in 20 <laughs> years. Like this is total bullshit. And so I said that. And I said, I said, this is crazy, guys. Like nobody here is fighting for hunting spots. Nobody here. And my editor at the time, he looked at me and he said, nobody gives a shit about public land hunting. They only want to watch big stuff die. So then I flew off the handle a little bit. Like the good, the good part about this was this was after I quit drinking. So anyway, I would, when he said that to me, I was like, you have no idea what you're talking about. And this, this was before like the whole big public land movement. This was, it was going, but it wasn't like it is now where right. it's like a huge badge of pride to be a public land hunter. And that's all you see. So this was, this was pre that by a little bit, but the, you could see where it was going, you know? And I thought, you're going to kill this. You guys are going to kill this industry because you can't see past what you want to do for yourself, which is hunt easy stuff and kill big things without working for it. Those, those guys are – In addition to almost getting me fired, it was as close as I ever got to getting totally fired, <laughs> the conversation <laughs> I had after that. It just made me realize. I'm like, this is the direction. This is where it's going to go, and this is why the industry is going to die if it stays the way it was. Those editors were comfortable hunting that same stand that was hung by the beef bean field, uh, Dude, day in and day yeah, out. Yeah, by somebody else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I was he going with them out there on a side by side and tells them to get in there and says, you know, a skyscraper and you know, field goal post will be out at six thirty feet and in here. Shoot the shoot whichever one gets closer. That's what that is. I was trying to make a scouting metaphor, but uh, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that would be both metaphorical and liter literal there. Um, oh, yeah, I, I could, and I think that's part of what we witnessed uh, when Chase and I, you know, were growing up watching some of these shows, was this very much the the term whack and stack comes to mind, um, very much about that uh, that end process and uh, the highlights. It's like a highlight reel, right? And not so much about the journey. Um, so it's it's interesting that you picked up on that as well. I've like I got a more of a like a trivia question or uh, like a maybe uh, ET kind of style question here. But who who would be the nicest? hunting personality aside from you know myself and chase that you've uh you dealt with in the industry uh, there's a lot of them um i mean that's i love a lot of people in the hunting industry like lee and tiffany lakoski are so nice like they are so absolutely nice miranda's awesome you know the mediator crew is awesome randy newberg is one of my favorite people ever like they're they're a have you ever got a have you ever got DQ with Randy Newberg, Dairy Queen? Uh, no. I you know, so you want to know what sucks about Randy Newberg? Let me tell you this. So I love Randy. And Randy's always like, man, we got to hunt together. Like we were supposed to hunt Iowa together. I'm like, 
dude, I got, I've got public land scouted out. He's got a bunch of points. I'm like, let's just draw and go. And he's like, I'm absolutely going to do that. And of course he flakes on me every time. Cause he doesn't want to go bow hunting either. And so I give him <laughs> a lot of shit about that, but no, I have never gone to DQ with him, but I will, if he ever actually goes hunting with me. Have you told him that there's lots of grouse at your spot? Have you tried that one? I've invited him out grouse hunting too. Yeah. <laughs> got, I got to peel him away from those Western States and driving around glass and big mule deer, I guess. It's oh tough. man, that's funny. Randy Newberg used to make a, uh, appearance in our show in conversation about every episode for the first probably 15 episodes. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty funny. Um, one thing I'm interested in, and, and I, I think you, you'd be probably a perfect person to answer this question, but in, in, uh, the hunting industry right now, this is kind of like a three-part question for you. Buckle up. What are we doing good as outdoorsmen? What are we doing shitty? And what can we do, be doing better, do you think, to just really promote the industry better and just promote hunting and outdoors? I, th- I think what we're doing well is focusing on more parts than just big animals. I mean, it's still a huge part of it, but the meat thing's super important. I mean, that's like... We, when we become untethered from the non-hunting public's understanding of us, it's because we ditch the meat. When we don't, when that's not a part of it, we become something else. So the focus on that's like, it's so important. It just, it just is. It, it justifies in their eyes what we do. It, it just, it, that's just the way it is. And so I think we're doing that well. And, and I think the focusing on the experience is is awesome. Like, I, I think that wins, not only does that win over some of the people who might be suspect of what we're doing, but it, it, it also is just a good thing. Like it's good for everybody. People mm-hmm. who've been hunting one year and people who've been hunting 50 years, what we're doing shitty is we're falling into the same traps we always do. So when you see the, the public land movement at first was awesome, right? Like just, just go have fun, go hunt, whatever on public land. Now you're seeing it go, Who's killing huge bucks on public land? Like who's <laughs> now, so we're we're going into the same patterns of behavior that we always do, where it's not enough anymore. So what yeah. what does it have to be? Oh, you killed 104. Who cares? Like why aren't you killing 160 inches? We're going. We do the same thing over and over and over again, and that's bad. And it, I think the other bad thing we're doing is we we've lulled ourselves into believing that we're showing hunting honestly. So when you go, when you, and I use social media as the prime example now. So it used to be the hunting show you guys are talking about where you grew up and you watched it and you're like, but this is BS. Like who, mm-hmm. who does this? Right. And we, but we recognize that. And we said, this is clearly not the kind of hunting I do. Now we look at social media and we see all these people who are presenting this life out there that they, they're badass hunters and they're all over and they, you know, they're posting these long diatribes about how amazing the sunset is or amazing the experiences. And then, but you know, these people and you know, like there's so much BS there or like, I know you don't know how to hunt. I've hunted with you. Like, this is, this is fake news. It, it's literally fake news. It's a lie. But what you're doing is presenting yourself as this person out and we all do it. Like it's a, that's a, that's an easy one to fall into, but I think we have to be careful with that because it's not true. Like it, it's so, it's so simple to present this, this just, it's the same thing people do with their marriages and their family life and everything. They're showing like, 
oh, you know, just want to wish my babe a happy fifth anniversary. Like, can't you just look across the couch and tell her that? Yeah. Like, why do you have to be an asshole and post this on Facebook? Like, <laughs> nobody cares about this moment between you and your wife, but you and your wife. Why do you have to tell this to the, It drives me nuts. Anyway, yeah. so we got to be careful with that stuff because we're going to take that medium and we're going to turn it into everything else we've done where it's this false reality of hunting that's just not true. And that's that scares me a little bit because that's what that's what kids are growing up on. Now they're looking at that, yeah. you know, and it's it's harder to see through the BS there. And so that I don't know, I, I could go on that one for a while. That that kind of brings you back to almost like the old style hunting shows where you're just getting those highlight reels, right? You're not getting the yeah. full story at times. I, I'm I'm reminded of that that quote. I, I the author's alluding me, but the 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 quote is that the medium is the message. And what we're seeing here in social media is, I think, and there's studies on it that, that really prove it, is that it's, um, and I guess we might be even guilty of it ourselves in the sense that we rely heavily on social media, but it's a very um, performance-based presentation, right? It's it's performative in a lot of ways, meaning that it's very filtered and it it's presenting, you know, only the good aspects of, of often and that seems to be inherent to the media and it's not that that form of media social media like instagram it's not it's not just for hunting or fishing per se but uh you know as you identified there tony like people do it with their lives they filter their lives through instagram right so yeah i guess what you're you're warning us here is that you know let's 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 make sure that we don't fall into that pitfall and we're connecting with authenticity every time that we look to engage. I think as a hunting community, as, you know, as peers in the hunting and fishing world, um, let's engage with authenticity. And I, I, that rings really true to me. I'm, I'm going to get off my soapbox real quick here, I promise. But, um, you know, when we look at people doing really great work in the industry, like backcountry hunting and anglers comes to mind like they really are a grassroots movement in a lot of ways and they're energized from the bottom up you know what i mean they use social media as a tool but their their main uh vehicle for action is that that connectedness and that the action that they actually participate in so i think there's something there it's a good reminder to us to to engage in those authentic activities to make sure that we're doing things for the right reasons um so i'm i'm wondering how you're what what's next around the corner then? Because we we live in a digital era. How do we balance those? If you know what I'm saying, how do we balance those two realities? Man, can you imagine if I could figure that out? <laughs> can you imagine if I was the guy that solved the social media problem? <laughs> I'm not the guy. We, what I think, I, I think that stuff scares me so much. It's like for my little girl, I think. I don't think this is good for us. I don't think social media is good for us. I think I think we're going to look back on this the same way we look at smoking now. I think we're going to go, I can't believe we all did that. Like, I can't believe we were all just like, let's just go to Instagram and hit this like button. Like, I, I can't believe we did that to ourselves. And so I think what we have to do, I think I think this is part of the reason why podcasts are so popular now is because it's a, like a, the other, the pendulum swings the other way. Like you... You, when you listen to somebody on a podcast and they're full of shit, you can tell because like, mm -hmm. you get enough time, right? Like you go, okay, this person doesn't know. Or you guys, I'm sure you've bumped into this. I've had people recommend guests to me, like social media influencers or people who are famous on the internet. And then I'll reach out to them and they will not do a podcast. And I go, you promote yourself constantly. 
what what's going on here? And then you start finding out. It's like, oh, because they're they don't know what they're doing, <laughs> and they know if they get there and you ask them questions, they don't know how to answer them. And so I think this is sort of the antidote to that. But I think we just need to be careful with all of it. And I I don't know what the answer. Like for me, it's just I limit myself. Like my my business partner for my podcast, he's like post more stuff and I'm like no <laughs> I'm not doing that like what are you going to do like, again what are you going to do fire me yeah. I'll just go start my I'll start a podcast somewhere else that's so, hilarious yeah we've been asking Jim Shockey at least once a week to come on so maybe he's one of those guys you know that just doesn't know all that much about hunting I don't know hard to say I'm just uh, have you have you ever interviewed Jim before? No, we haven't no. had the pleasure. We're just kidding. We're big fans of Jim, so that's why we're okay. Ju- we're joking. I won't around. tell you my story then. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say Jim's not coming on my podcast. Oh, here we go. <laughs> uh oh. Um. So no, I want to. Are you good for that story there, Tony? Uh, I'll just I'll just say that I had to interview him for a book one time, and I was like, God, this is bad. I. We can... I left that interview. I was like, Jesus Christ, man. Like the the topic was hunting bucks in Saskatchewan in the snow or something. It, tracking bucks, you know, like old school style, get on the track. And he was talking about how if he gets on a track, the buck's dead every time. Never gets away. And I'm just like, Jim, never? <laughs> like, like I'm, I'm going to put this in the book. Like never? Nope. If I get on them, they're dead. And I'm just like, oh, my God, dude, really? <laughs> like not once, never. It's all, it's 100%. And so that was that was a part where I was kind of like, uh, okay. And I, may, that, to be fair, I had to interview a whole bunch of hunting celebrities for that book. So by that time, I might have just been super jaded already anyway. So it might not be as much of a reflection on him. But when he said that, I was it just – I, I lost a little bit there. Your BS radar was pretty fine tuned at that point in time, maybe, or pretty sensitive, we'll say. Um, it just, man, th- it really sucks because the amount of people I interviewed for that, some of them had nothing to offer as far as actual hunting advice. And I know that's going to make me sound bad, but I was like, this is a mile wide and an inch deep. You're telling me everything that you expect you should have to say here. And there was like nothing from personal experience. You know what I mean? Like it was just like one of those things where, and it wasn't everybody, but there were some of the people I interviewed for that book where I was like, you're, you're famous in this industry, but it's definitely not because you're a good hunter. <laughs> like there's, <laughs> there's, there's other things going on here. Cause you could just tell in that style, they're just, they had nothing nothing actionable to offer the average person if that makes sense man that's got to be a put you in a difficult position when you're trying to put out a something that's authentic or something that's even going to be attractive to to your crowd you know or well, the good, the good thing about that book was my name is not the one on it <laughs> <So> <laughs> it just is what it is that's funny um so in all of this and where we're at now, what do you think the future is of of the uh, the media for the outdoors world? What's the next big thing coming down the pipe? I, man, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Because wh- where do we go after the public land movement? You know, is it everybody makes their own self bows and we wear rawhide and buckskin and we go back? <laughs> you know, like what what is it? Hey, we got a guy and- for that too, eh? <laughs> 
I, I love that you just followed that up with A. My wife was joking. She said, you got to say A a whole bunch on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> anyway, she hates Canada. I don't know why. She's mean like that. I'm oh, joking. Geez. She doesn't. But I don't, I don't know what's next. I don't, I don't know where we go. What I think, what, what I think we see, m- m- most, of these, most of these things that come up and burn hot don't have longevity. And so I always look at the hunting public as that example. I'm like, how long are these guys going to pull this off? Like, I don't know. I don't. And what's what's next with them? Right. OK, you go around and now you kill a bunch of Western stuff, kill a bunch of this. And how many turkey tours are people going to watch? I don't know. But then you see when I see the meat eater style, I go, well, they they kind of left themselves open to just about anything. They can do fishing, hunting, foraging, storytelling, character driven stuff. And so. I think it's just going to be people who adapt and listen to the audience and what people, what the audience gets sick of, they'll tell you what they want. And so that, that'll be the driver for the next big thing. And I, I don't know what it's going to be. I, I felt like I was way ahead of the public land thing. I don't feel like I'm ahead of the next one. I don't know. I don't know where we're going. Yeah. And I think like fair reflection, but I think if we look at like the mediator style, what they've done in my opinion is they've tapped into a long tradition of just let's tell a good story. Let's start there. And I, you've alluded to it too, Tony. Um, let's put the storytelling first and foremost, and then worry about the details that need to fall in line there first. And I think you know, just as long as we put that at the forefront, like maybe we'll knock it out of the park every time. But we'll be closer to that authenticity and maybe a little farther away from uh, that performative aspect of uh, or that kind of false presentation on social media we might be seeing right now. Uh, man, I hope so, buddy. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope I hope that's the direction we keep going. I, I mean, I think you're right, and I I hope it's I hope it stays that way. Or we're both gonna be out of jobs. You know, that's that's the other. <laughs> I'm, I'm already working on my fallback career. When I when I get drummed out of the hunting industry, I'm gonna just train dogs and play with labs. <laughs> <laughs> that's my next thing. Hey, that's not a bad idea. And uh, we got a buddy up here who does that too. And uh, that's uh, he's living pretty happy. So maybe maybe you're onto something there. Yeah. Um, a couple of questions here before we uh, we won't take up too much more of your time, but uh, just wanted to. Gotta gotta ask you. You said last meal at the beginning of the the podcast here would be a backstrap. What's your favorite way to prepare that? I can't let you drop the the B word without letting me know how you cook that thing. Oh man, my well, let me put it this way: my favorite way to eat it is when I'm still in camp and we get to grill it over a fire. If oh. that like if you if you could take in like the environmental circumstances and the the overall entirety of how I'm going to eat it, that's my favorite. You know, at home, we do a lot of grilling. We do a lot of, you know, saute up a bunch of vegetables or onions and mushrooms. And it just depends. We cook it a lot of different ways. But my favorite way is I I like it over open flame. And I like it having had walked around the day before, (laughs) if that that works for you. Yeah, you can taste that that backstrap was earned. That's awesome. Um, And then I'm I'm wondering if uh, you being from Minnesota and all, um, did I say that right? Is it Minnesota or? Yeah, you can say it any way you want, buddy. That was, that, you, I mean, you guys are like Minnesota North, so you're not that <laughs> yeah. far away. In fact, when sometimes when you guys are talking, you remind me of my cousins from the Iron Range because they're right up there <laughs> close to you guys. You said holy man earlier, and I was like, man, I haven't heard that since my cousins. Yeah, yeah, that uh, I believe that. 
So could could we mistake you for a hockey fan then? Is there any chance of that? No. Not, so, not a I, chance. I'm not uh I spend so much time outdoors that I just don't get into professional sports following along. And it just I just never have. And so I'm not uh I'm not a big hockey guy. I I like playing sports even though I'm getting kind of old now, but I don't I'm not I'm not paying attention. I just don't have the bandwidth. Oh, that's okay. We'll mark you down for a Winnipeg Jets fan then and call it a day. <laughs> like you can you can make up whatever lie you want about me being a hockey fan. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, well, uh that was that was my last uh question here to to round off the session and uh would just like to say before we nope. say goodbye to you, Tony. We've mentioned your podcast numerous times on the uh, on the episode here. Um, you're on social media. Uh, I'm sure you're still doing a ton of writing. Why don't you let the folks know that are listening in on this, where to find your podcast, where to find you on social media, and where to find your latest um, penmanship. Uh the podcast is Hunt for Real. I have two podcasts, actually, Hunt for Real and Sporting Dog Talk. So Hunt for Real is more of this kind of style with a lot of hunting stories, a lot of bow hunting, a lot of public land stuff, deer stuff. And then Sporting Dog Talk is just anything and everything about working dogs. And it's it's if you're into dogs and you like hearing people who are experts and canine researchers and trainers, it's a it's a pretty cool – it's a really enjoyable thing for me to be putting out there. So we have that out there too. And it's all over everywhere you find podcasts. Both of them are, you know, all the social media is the same, same name. And then the writing, you know, I have a column in Bowhunter magazine. I do a, a weekly for meat eater, the meat eater.com. So I write for them and I'm, I'm actually filming some back 40 episodes with them for this fall. Um, a lot of stuff in North American whitetail. I got a column in wildfall magazine, um, gun dog magazine. So you, you you can find as much writing as you want that I do. It's it's out there all over, so it's it's not terribly difficult to find. Yeah, you're certainly a busy man, and uh, the one thing I do enjoy about your writing is that it, I, like I was reading a couple articles of yours that were like mid two thousand teens kind of thing, and uh, still very relevant today. Great info. So I appreciate that. Yeah, timeless. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's, you know, you know what the secret is there? It's just going out and doing this stuff that everybody else is doing, that it doesn't go away. You know, if you're, if you're hunting five years ago on public land, the the lessons are the same today, you know? And so that's, I, I like that part about getting out and getting after it. I think that's, I think the relatability of it's really cool. That's awesome. Well, Tony, thanks a lot for coming on, man. Really appreciate it. Really enjoyed our time with you and uh, best of luck out there for the rest of your fall. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. Well, that wraps another episode of the Panoramic Outdoor Podcast. Thank you, Tony, for coming on. And Tony just sounds like a guy that you need to go out hunting with. It would be super fun to be in the field with, I think, eh? Man, I, I, I'd love to just hang with him for a couple of days, hunting whitetail or hunting birds, which is another one of his specialties, obviously. And he just seems like a dude you can learn a lot from. But he's also one of the guys that, you know, you're not going to get no BS from him either. 100. Yeah, so be be sure to check in on Tony there. He's not, as you heard, he's not super prolific on the, the old Instagram front there. But 
heck of a writer got his podcast out there check it out and uh if you want to support us what's the best way to do that there sheldon yeah man the best way to do that is to follow us on any type of um social media platform facebook or instagram we we're on instagram daily and we love hearing from people so even if you have suggestions on what we can do better on the podcast if it's guests that you might like to see tag them or like message us and dm us and we love hearing from you from all the folks from all around the places that are listening and uh yeah, and when you're on our um, podcast platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, all you got to do is give us a like, give us a rating, give us that five stars, and subscribe. Those those few things make this podcast go more and more, and, and we get better and more guests, and we get to create more content. So we can entertain, we can try to educate, and try to just help people get outside. And if, last but not least, if you're looking for anything to get your outdoors family member, you know, your dog walker, whoever it may be, the person that cleans your aquarium, I don't know. We've got apparel on our website at our store. we got apparel. We were going to have some some cool new things coming in for Christmas. So check that out. Um, support us where you can. Uh, we appreciate every single one of you guys. Just before we leave here, guys, don't forget we have a flat rate shipping happening now, and it's not going to be on for much longer. So um, normally shipping uh within manitoba or across canada is like 20 bucks sometimes more our with our flat rate shipping right now anywhere in manitoba is six dollars anywhere across canada is ten dollars and that's because we got six thousand on the instagram and we just surpassed our 60th episode of the podcast so uh just thank you guys again we hope you take advantage of that we got lots of great stuff on that store for you guys to check out So if we don't see you on the trail, just be sure to keep your knife sharp, that line tight, and powder dry. Have a good night, folks.